Well, hello and welcome to episode number 301 of the Plain Talking UK podcast. I'm Carlos and uh, not with me in the studio this week is Matt Smith because he's out having a jolly over, I think he's back at Heathrow, isn't he, Nev, I think? He is, yes. I think he's doing some uh, more airport collection and delivery business. So, yeah. So joining me, as you heard there, is, of course, uh, the legend that is uh, Neville Bound. So how are you, Nev? I'm well, but I'm very tired after last week's uh, business down at Heathrow. Uh, How we've got anything to work again this week, I will never know, because both of our respective studios were dismantled and we took the whole lot down to Heathrow and somehow we've managed to get a show together this week which has been a bit challenging but uh, surprisingly here we are. So joining us as well this week uh, from his uh, studio over in Charlotte I think you're in Charlotte aren't you Armando? Uh, Close I'm in Denver Colorado Uh, It's only about halfway across the country. So I'm actually in the middle of um, day three of a six-day trip. Um, So even though I am Pittsburgh-based, we fly uh, or we often get assigned to another base for a week at a time. So currently I am assigned to Denver for the week and flying out here in the Rockies. So uh, how's the uh, flying been going then, Armando? I take it you've uh, you've been doing uh, plenty of, uh, obviously because your new job and everything, you're doing plenty of flying. Yeah, it's uh, it stays pretty busy. It's uh, the weather out here is a little bit more challenging than the East Coast, right? Maybe not more challenging, just a little bit different. Um, especially when you're flying a Pilatus PC12 around, it's uh, you know you're still single engine, but the airplane is fantastic. It does, um, you know, you're up in the flight levels. We're at twenty five thousand to twenty six thousand feet, and it handles icing great because uh, it is the Rocky Mountains. So the rocks come up to about fourteen thousand feet. And, even at 25, you're only 10,000 feet above them, and there's uh, all kinds of weather and, and icing, and makes for some interesting approaches. We have just, you know, we fly into Telluride and Cortez and um, some of the other more challenging airports, probably in, in North America, in uh, central and western Colorado. So it, uh, it's good, tests a little bit of your piloting skill. So, how come you're, uh, you've been stuck with bed number eight then? Uh, oh, sorry, Armando. Carlos, can't hear you. No, you can't hear me. Hello. Hey, there you are. Hello. Hello. Can you hear me now? Yeah, there you are. Has my audio changed that much, Nev? (laughs) Yeah, it has. Yes. Okay, that's funny because I haven't actually touched anything at all on the desk, so don't know quite what's going on there. Oh, I was going to say, actually, Armando, have, have you, uh, you, I take it you couldn't afford bed number one because you've been stuck with bed number eight. <laughs> so uh, my company has uh, crew houses uh, all around the country. Uh, it kind of saves them. With, you know, there's enough airplanes, enough moving of people and, and planes around that. It saves them a lot of money if they just rent an apartment because there's always a crew there. So it's got a, a slight prison vibe to it. You know, it's, it's real nice with the bed numbers and the room numbers and um, yes, I am bed number eight, and I shall only be known as number eight in this household. Well, let's do But uh, also, joining us uh, on the show this week is uh, a couple of hosts of another podcast that some of you people may have listened to. Uh, I do listen to the show. So from the Seat 1A podcast, we'll introduce uh, well, the first one of the first co-hosts of the show. So I hope I get this right. Is it Hello Vinny? Yes, Vinny, and I go with Node, and yeah, 
Pleasure to be here from Vancouver, Canada. So uh, what's the uh, forecast like uh, for you in uh, Canada then? Because uh, we're experiencing absolutely no winter at all here in the UK. <laughs> it was like that. If you asked me a week ago, it'd be like your typical Vancouver spring kind of winter wannabe. Uh, but we were kind of digging out from a blizzard season that we just had this past week. Uh, probably about four to six inches of snow and airport ops completely just going off the rails. Uh, but today's not bad. A uh, bit of freezing rain in the forecast. And if you look ahead at the forecast for the weekend, it's just going to be pure rain to wash everything away. And in a week from now, we'll never know it all happened. So uh, it's not bad over here. No, that's good to know. At least uh, you haven't got 14 feet of snow. Because like when we have snow here in the UK, as you probably know, we get two or three flakes in every single airport and the whole entire country shut down. That's right. It's pretty much like that for the city. And I mean, the surrounding airports, uh, apart from Vancouver YVR, and they're, we're all in the same boat, even one on Vancouver Island in Victoria, uh, YVR being the major one, and then all the other smaller ones, that airport, the city, the transit system, and we won't even get into the whole discussion about people and their driving abilities and what they may or may not know what to do and it uh, having been born and raised in a winter environment it's always comic relief to kind of just look outside and see what's going on and the chaos happens the few times of the year that it does happen so uh yeah let's just say it's been a very entertaining week so far so joining us as well from the seat 1a podcast is uh, the other awesome co-host of the show so welcome on to uh, the show jeff Hi there. Yep. So coming to you from Toronto, uh, currently right now, uh, it's about minus uh, 10 or 11 Celsius. And we've got the Armageddon forecast for the next 24 hours with about 20 centimeters of snow on the way. So operations are good right now, but uh, YYZ is going to be a mess in the next over the next uh, couple of days over the weekend here. Oh, sounds good. Well, fingers crossed um, we'll actually be able to uh, kind of get somewhere close to where you guys are because we tend to get our snow here late, uh, later and later in the year. What do you reckon now? I think it'll be probably February, March. Will we get any snow in the UK yeah, now? We, we it tends to be later uh, in January, but uh, uh, one of our listeners, Liz Piper, who's also in Toronto, uh, was <laughs> saying it was going to be between uh, minus 11 and minus 13 degrees Celsius. So that's, uh, that's cold enough for, for me, but also <laughs> it's the, I guess it's the wind chill that you get with it as well uh, over there. So that's uh, pretty raw, I guess. Time for the heated seats in the, uh, in the banana, Nev. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Definitely. So we're going to welcome uh, everyone who's joined us in the chat room tonight. Loads of the usual family members in there. Uh, just notice a few uh, coming in at the last minute there. So welcome to you guys and girls in there. Not going to read everyone's name out because we are running late, as always, because of the technical difficulties at the start of the show. But I did notice, actually, that Graham Haley is in the chat room. So, Graham, if you're listening, uh, could you ping us an email with your address on? Because I've got uh, your prize from the PTUK Christmas competitions to send you so if you could send us send us your uh, address to send it off to I'll get off to the post uh, to you uh, quickly as I can just a quick note as well to everyone who won a prize who had their name pulled from the hat at the 300 show last week uh, I did today post most of the prizes off uh, so for everyone who got uh, the name pulled from the hat and got a prize that'll be sent off or that'll be well, should be delivered hopefully uh, fairly soon apart from Ray Davis in Australia who will probably get his prize in uh, Christmas 2021 yeah. do you think Nev 
Yeah, I think so. <laughs> if, if the post works well. Yeah, Christmas at the end of this year. But uh, no, great that uh, Ray won a prize. Right. Yeah, it is. There were some, some, really, some good prizes this year. Really good prizes this year. Um, yeah, and I'll jump in there and say thanks to Ray also. He sent us a really nice feedback, uh, kind of summarizing the year and... Uh, you know, congratulations for the 300th. But I think his message came in just a little bit after we had wrapped yeah. up the show. But uh, just wanted to thank him and uh, for sending that in. And we love, I love always listening to listener feedback, especially when it's behind the scenes like that. It's really good. Uh, it's always nice to get suggestions too. So keep them coming. Yeah, keep them coming. So then we are going to start the show then as we do each week with our rundown of the weekly news from around the world and the UK. So if everyone is ready. We are, surprisingly. Yes. Let's go. Fingers crossed. And that's a good start. Oh, dear. There we go. Let's have some audio. So, kicking off this week's first news story before everything fails hideously. It's uh, This story is on the bbc.co.uk and uh, it's uh, regarding an airline that we've talked about in the show a bit uh, and it's obviously Flybe and uh, actually I was quite shocked when I saw this, this story this week on the news because I just, you know, it was a bit um, one of those stories that I thought, well, just leave them alone because uh, BA owners, IAG, has filed a complaint to the EU arguing Flybe's rescue breaches state aid rules. Uh, the move comes amid growing backlash against the government plan to defer some of Flybe's air passenger duty payments uh, thought to top £100 million. EasyJet and Ryanair said taxpayers' funds should not be used to save a rival. Meanwhile, the government's uh, proposal to cut air passenger duty was uh, attacked by the rail industry's trade body and climate campaign groups. EasyJet's uh, chief executive Johan Lundgren said that taxpayers should not be used to bail out individual companies, especially when they are backed by well-funded businesses. While Ryanair said it has called for more robust and frequent stress tests on financially weak airlines and tour operators so the taxpayer doesn't have to bail them out. The government has said that the review of the taxes will be consistent with its zero carbon targets. However, in a tweet, Graham Party MP Caroline Lucas said addressing flyby problems by reducing APD on domestic flights is utterly inconsistent with any uh, serious commitment to tackle the climate crisis. Domestic flights need to be reduced, not made cheaper. So the rail, de- uh, rail Delivery Group, which represents train operators, also said any review of APD that encourages more people to fly domestically would limit efforts to tackle uh, the climate crisis. So ahead of the filing uh, state aid complaint, Willie Walsh, the outgoing chief executive of IAG, wrote to the Transport Secretary Grant Shapps, criticising the government's in- uh, involvement uh, with uh, the airline's rescue. Nev, this is, uh, you know... I mean, it's an airline, they're in trouble, um, they need a sort of lifeline, do not think it's a bit um, poor, really, yeah, that they're I, all I think, moaning. Um, bit of a bit of a fail on the part of IAG and, and Ryanair there, because 
hard uh, B um, Fly B hardly compete with anyone either of those two airlines mm. apart from possibly the uh, Heathrow uh, Edinburgh routes in, in the case of BA and actually Fly B is quite an important regional operator um, and I think that um, it, again they're comparing it with Monarch and Thomas Cook there's no comparison whatsoever this is a very different airline um, so I think it's perfectly reasonable for the government to step in I don't think they've you know got the checkbook out I think they've just arranged with um, uh, the tax authorities to defer some tax and that kind of thing but um, no I think actually Flybe is a vital part of the UK infrastructure uh, certainly so um, and it's um, interesting to note that people complaining about state aid in inverted commas um, and uh, we just have to look at Air France uh, as an example of where that may have happened in the past. So, um, you know, I, I, I think it's perfectly reasonable for the government to take the initiative uh, to make sure this airline doesn't collapse. Yeah, I'm fairly uh, sure. It, I'm, I'm sorry. You know, today's a good day to talk about this, too, since we've got three countries represented just with the oh, hosts true. and then, you know, numerous more in the chat room. But I, I, I think it's interesting. So what is, what is the government that I suppose this could get contentious, too, but what is the government's role in in ensuring that there is competition, that there is transport services, as opposed, you know, doesn't doesn't it get a little bit weird when an airline is potentially having troubles because of its own management or financial structure? You know, what is the government's role in that? Yeah, and I, th I think it's um, uh, I, I, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of factors, and I think that the when you're running a fleet of um, Q400s mainly, um, which are fairly inexpensive to operate, one would have thought, but you've got some very awkward routes there as well, um, uh, and they presumably do rely on quite high load factors to make those sectors um, pay. Um, so if you end up with a situation where you've got you know, 10 people on the aircraft, uh, that, that's quite a big problem for them. But um, I'm hoping this is just gonna be a, a bit of a hiccup for them and that they can you know, um, survive it. And with the assistance of the shareholders and uh, Virgin, who were supposed to be rebranding it Virgin Connect, um, hmm. then I think it's got every possibility of of surviving but uh, yeah as you say management structure and the people running it that's that's a whole different uh, different argument isn't it so from uh, from that sort of miserable story on to another good story for you nev because this one is involving some very good news uh, for well from ba anyway Yes, it is. And um, it, this is on the uh, falmouthpacket.co.uk. Not a website I have visited recently, uh, if at all. Um, <laughs> but it says, when Penryn College uh, student and aspiring pilot James Robertson landed his dream work experience role with aviation giants British Airways last year, he was unaware that the opportunity would enable him to become an ambassador for the company just months later. The year 11 pupil earned a highly coveted place on the London-based British Airways Work Experience Program during Penryn uh, College's 2019 Work Experience Week. Learning the ins and outs of the industry via behind-the-scenes tours of state-of-the-art aircraft, insightful talks with BA pilots and much more. Those unique experiences were followed up with another fantastic opportunity for James when he was invited to enrol on a summer training course which would make him a British Airways Inspire Ambassador, promoting work experience opportunities with the company and providing an insight into programs. 
Uh, he said as part of the training uh, process, I was provided with corporate training on presenting, representing the BA brand and gaining confidence in front of large audiences. I can now proudly say that I'm a BA inspired ambassador, which means I'm able to provide advice to anyone who's interested in earning a work experience placement, placement with British Airways. Uh, but James's ambassador training was just one of many elements which made his time up, up with uh, British Airways. And the uh, aspiring pilot was full of joy and reflecting on taking part in the work experience program. The whole work experience program was based on flight operations and what it takes to become a pilot. So we worked alongside pilots and pilot recruiters throughout the process, said James. We were based at the Waterside offices uh, HQ in London, where we learned the best tips and tricks in the industry. We experienced what flight training entails via 747-8 and Airbus A380 flight simulators, flew gliders, toured a double-decker aircraft and took part in pilot briefings which detail how pilots plan routes for each flight. Well, despite James's uh, pilot, uh, sorry, dream pilot operating uh, training, he noted another aspect of work experience program as his highlight. I enjoyed everything about my BA experience. But the highlight was the people that I met along the way. Meeting like-minded people who share the same passion I've had all my life was fantastic. Vitally, I, earned, I also learned how to fulfill my dream of becoming a pilot. So if you want more information on the BA work experience roles, you can visit careers.ba.com forward slash, forward slash work hyphen experience. That's careers.ba.com forward slash work hyphen experience. So it sounds though like he's had a, uh, a very nice introduction to the company there, doesn't it? I know. We've we talked about this on the show quite a bit. Do you not think... Your the you know children these days in especially in the UK, I don't know what it's like over in the US or in Canada, but in the UK, young people now get far better chances to become a pilot. I know the the cost is obviously an implication, but there are more options available for youngsters who are leaving school who want to move into the aviation industry. Is that the same across the US and Canada? Well, I know here in the US there are more and more universities that have aviation programs from community colleges, which are usually more a little bit more local, all the way up to the big Embry-Riddle type universities, University of North Dakota, Polk State. Um, those, those are large universities, four-year colleges that grant you an aviation degree as well as your pilot ratings. So it is entirely um, possible here in the US to do it. Uh, I don't know so much about Canada. Uh, what do you guys have up there? Vinny, you're probably uh, in a better spot than I am. For yeah, that. yeah. Um, I did actually actually look into this. Uh, I'd say almost just over a decade ago, uh, I was considering the whole thing, and there are a number of similar to the U.S. Uh, university-based programs, or you can just lead in um, through a degree program right when you come out of high school, uh, and they partner up with a local flying school or uh, college of some sort because of the sheer distance of everything. Um, in Canada versus the U.S. where you have a lot more uh, aviation centers nearby. Everything's kind of focused, centralized inward. And one airline that actually recently, I don't know if they reinstated or just brought back a new version of a sort of cadet program is one of the Air Canada subsidiaries, which is known as Jazz or Air Canada Express. Um, in Ontario, uh, they now have a cadet program where you, a traditional style from around the world, where you sign on, you get schooled, and then you you know you sign your life away with them for however many years and fly. 
uh, and it's great. Uh, and they are starting to recruit more pilots uh, and cadets into that program. So uh, similar to the U.S., and yeah, there's definitely a lot of university options and college options to kind of get into it through the trades or through a degree program. What about the cost of uh, learning to fly in Canada? Is it obviously in the UK it costs a fortune? Uh, the flight, the actual, the initial training, PPL training, is that is that cheap in Canada? Way cheaper. Oh, definitely much cheaper. <laughs> uh, I believe to to go from zero to commercial, uh, you're somewhere about, we'll say forty to fifty thousand. Well, Canadian, so ramp it up with uh, your living expenses, let's say 40, 50,000 US. If you were just like, you know, if I was just go out now and just get a standard PPL uh, with, you know, straight up, it would be around seven to 10,000, depending on where and how I do it. Uh, so it's, it's not bad. From what I've heard talking to other um, pilots and students that have kind of come across to the industry, Canada is definitely a, a good place to do it. The only downside is the weather conditions and where you're going to be based. It's not consistent. So that's one thing you have to contend with is, you know, when it clouds over, what are you doing in the meantime? So, <laughs> yeah, it's not a bad place. So, Armando, moving on to the uh, to the next story. And um, this story is all about uh, the great shrinking airline seat. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to speed through the story because I want to he hear from the seat 1A guys. Uh this is a story about the 106-year history of the dreaded economy airline seats. Uh, let's see, as uh, millions of travelers take to the skies each year, economy seats continue to shrink. Uh, let's see, we started out in the 1910s, 1940s, first commercial flights to sort of post-World War One era. And I'm looking at, at some of the aircraft they have listed here. They were initially flying boats, um, you know, doing about, what, 100 kilometers per hour, so not not very much and 23 minute journeys on a single wooden seat. Um, and then following that, and I know up in Duxford, they have a couple aircraft where you can go in as well as some of the museums here in the U S where sort of those 1920s, 1930s, they started putting in wicker seats. Why wicker unknown? Well, unknown to me. I don't know. You guys can probably chime in, but uh, I, I remember seeing in uh, Mount Pleasant, Texas, there's a, a Ford tri-motor that was one of the first Delta airliners. And the woodwork was amazing. It was wicker seats, sort of hand-laid uh, wood inserts and and real, uh, I think, gas-burning sconces, lamps on the side. Um, wow. Yeah, it was beautiful. It was amazing. It was, it was a work of art. But then we move on to the aluminum seat. <laughs> so... Sort of the 1940s, 1950s, we start going to aluminum, cushion foam, uh, seating, doing away with the warping and the combustibility of wood. Let's see. One of the first commercial tickets, airline tickets, was sold to Abraham File for $400, which is the equivalent of $10,000 today, $10,000 U.S. dollars, uh, on Air France's luxurious La Première Suite. Um, that was 1936. We had the DC three 20 to 30 passengers seats were down to about 18 inches in width uh oh yeah so right around that time we started getting a little bit higher so 10 to 15,000 feet for transit routes well that's exactly where the weather is um then we get into the 50s and the 60s the golden flying age or golden age of flying 
And that's where most of us remember the movies and all the pictures. That's why we all became pilots. It was uh, an exquisite experience. Nev, you were there in person. No, I'm just kidding. You're not, you're not that old. <laughs> Let's see. 34 to 36-inch pitch, uh, ideal distance between two seats. That's when everybody was wearing suits, ties, gowns, dresses, kind of a glitzy dress code. I know when I was flying in the 80s as a kid with my father, it was Sunday best. I mean, we were in coats and ties, but that was the glamour age of aviation. And I know for me, that's why became a pilot. Uh, let's see. Then we keep moving on. I'm going to skip a little bit. We got the 707, Douglas DC-8. Uh, now we're getting to about 200 passengers, 80% pa- uh, faster than their predecessors. Then we had the deregulation era between the 70s, you know, sort of the 70s. That's where we started getting a little bit more utilitarian. Um, armrests, uh, seats got a little bit skinnier. Had uh, changes in fabrics, changes in foams. This article kind of goes on and on, but how about I just turn it over to the seat 1A guys and tell us from those, the golden age of aviation to today in economy, (laughs) what are your thoughts on how seats have uh, evolved? Well, just the the comfort factor. I remember flying um, 767s in the 80s and uh, Airbus 300 and you know the seats were thick the foam was thick the uh, you, know, you still had to worry about smoking in the uh, armrest and having to deal with the ashtrays and and all of the the risks of uh, things catching on fire and just noticing how things are getting less spongy but trying to be uh, more comfortable on especially super long legs. Uh, speaking of super long legs, what do you guys think about the, you know, so we've done some stories about seats where they're almost like roller coaster seats where you're sort of cramming them in. You're not really in a sitting like, position. Uh, like Ryanair's uh, standing-ish kind of seats or? Yeah, it's like a standing seat. Yeah. What do you think about that? Um, well, for for commuting flights, I would think that might be all right. But um, it's almost like sort of like a bar stool for lack of a better analogy um somebody's going to try it at some point to to see if they can squeeze more people into a certain number of rows i remember watching uh sam tree when he i think he went to a demonstration at one of the um, aviation shows and he was standing there in it and i think one of the comments he said is if you could just have a strap across your chest to hold you in in that position then maybe it'd be okay because you just kind of let your body go limp and you're just there on that bar stool. So <laughs> if, if it goes that way, I don't know if our, our human physiological dynamic is probably going to change a little bit. Um, but the evolution of the seat is, and I, I feel very intimate when it comes to an economy seat. And this goes back to uh, my British Airways days in Calgary and I was the duty mm-hmm. manager. And I would help out when we'd have tight turns uh, of the 777-200 that would come in and, you know, we'd have to turn that plane 90 minutes or less as fast as you can go. So you're in there with the groomers, knee seats, and, well, I mean, we could do a whole story about what do you find in between economy seats, but um, the structure of the seat, and as Jeff was saying, the padding and the mechanics of it, you know, at that sort of time, compared to what it is now, where you have a lot more uh, leather, plastic services, and different densities of foam. It's interesting how it's changed. Um, another point where it kind of hit me was, as when I was working cabin crew, 
when the triple sevens went from a three 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 configuration to an extra suddenly there's this extra set of seats so a three four three um that aisle width suddenly got a lot narrower and a lot more uncomfortable and i remember flying on emirates 343 config and when you're used to having this aisle this great expanse where you can put your leg and sort of breathe whatever little oxygen you can find and that opposite aisle person is literally poking distance it's like okay what what's happened to the modern times here like this has not become glamorous at all it's safe to say i think um especially with the economy seats now um in some airlines they are the, i think the foam is non-existent or fairly non-existent especially in, with the uk airlines anyway so jeff we're going to move on to you next with the next story on simpleflying.com and we've we've obviously been talking about uh, seats and this is about cramming lots of seats into an aircraft yes uh, it goes to the original configuration that possibly was available so one airline was going to create an all economy 840 seat airbus 380 configuration uh, the mega structure that is the a380 is uh, quite a sight to behold and quite an aircraft to fly on too but all that space means that there's a lot of room for airlines to put their own stamp on the aircraft too. And around the world, we've seen a huge variation on the A380 layout with one airline even proposing an all-economy 840-seat layout. And uh, throughout the 14 customers that purchased the A380, each has their own way of configuring the interior. Thankfully, most have been fairly kind to the passenger with decent legroom and a fair amount of premium seating. However, one airline wanted to configure the aircraft in the most passenger-unfriendly way. So Air Astral did at one time have an order for two of the giant jumbos. Not only that, it planned to outfit them with no less than 840 all-economy seats. Uh, it planned to use the, these horrific aircraft to shift people between its Indian uh, Ocean Hub and Paris in one of the least ways possible. And although it never went ahead with the order of the two A380s, it uh, was assumed that it would only be a matter of time before someone went for the maximum passenger capacity. And it was, was, uh, it was with relief that Airbus announced the end of the 380 program with still zero orders for the knee-crunching all-economy configuration. And so how many people can you fit into an A380? And according to Airbus, the absolute maximum passenger capacity of an A380 is 868 passengers in a single class layout. That would involve seating 538 on the lower deck and 300 on the upper. No airline has yet requested such a layout. In fact, the current owners of the Airbus A380 don't come anywhere close. Um, of all the A380s currently in service, the number of passengers carried varies between 379 and 615, but who squeezes the most passengers onto the A380? Uh, they're gonna take a look. Uh, and so the configurations uh, with the A380s carrying the most passengers right now belongs to Emirates on a specially configured uh, 380 operating from Dubai to Copenhagen, uh, doing away with the first uh, and replacing that cabin with more upper deck economy seating. On the 615 seater 380, uh, Emirates offers 437 economy seats downstairs uh, with no business and no premium. 
On the upper deck, there are 120 more economy seats, as well as 58 business class seats in a one-to-one configuration. And the airline with the least A380 seats is Singapore Airlines, which has a 379-seat configuration flying right now. Uh, Premium heavy plane offers uh, on the lower deck, 12 first-class seats, 36 premium economy, and 245 economy positions. Upstairs is a staggering 86 business class seats. Uh, Korean has a sub four, uh, 400 seat 380, 12 first class seats, uh, 293 economy seats, and 94 business class seats all in the upper deck. And if you're looking for first class luxury, Emirates maxes out the number of first class suites or uh, seats or slash suites at 14. All on the upper deck, Emirates has no less than five seating configurations on board the A380 with the maximum number of first products. Uh, Qantas also flies a 14 first class seater, uh, A380, but other airlines are limited to 12 or less. And uh, That's so of crazy. course airlines have been creative in the other ways they use their spaces. Many feature onboard bars. Emirates also included showers for uh, premium passengers. Air France opted for an electronic art gallery, while Etihad created the residence as well as private prayer rooms. Can you imagine Nev flying all the way to uh, Dubai with Emirates with um, 838 other people? Oh, no. No, 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 no. Uh, but I didn't mind the economy seats that you and I sat in at the Dubai Air Show. Uh, at the front um, by the uh, exit uh, area. That that mm. was pretty good, wasn't it, from a legroom point of view? But um, the rest of it, imagine that level of density would be pretty horrific, I would imagine. But not only that as well, you know, the actual loading of the aircraft, passenger boarding at the gate, 840 passengers. That's going to be... Well, I, I was just saying this to one of my colleagues this week. I just flew back from Edinburgh, uh, or sorry, flew to Edinburgh on an A321. Um, so not not the highest capacity aircraft you could ever get. It took us 45 minutes to board it with people <laughs> faffing about with their luggage and I was tutting away, <laughs> as you would expect, and giving people, you know, inappropriate glances and looking at my watch. And actually, even the captain got fed up with it because he said, look, guys, you need to get, sit down because we're going to miss uh, our slot at this rate. So, yeah, it's all about, isn't it strange? Here we are in 2020, and the easy bit is flying at Mach 0.8 or thereabouts through the air. The difficult bit is getting on the aircraft <laughs> or getting off the aircraft and collecting your luggage. That, those are the two biggest challenges now. I was thinking when you were mentioning this, um, just imagine customs and all the people coming through. And if there happened to be two planes of that uh, capacity landing at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that that happens obviously at the bigger airports. So Amsterdam Schiphol, Heathrow, Frankfurt, uh, probably uh, Toronto, Vancouver, I guess, Montreal maybe. So, yeah, Yeah. it's, it's the same story. Yeah, yeah. I was speaking today to, to a very good friend of mine who's just flown back from Cambodia and uh, he took an internal flight because he, uh, he went via, I think he'd done Cambodia and Thailand and he flew with Vietnam Airlines and one of the internal mm. flights, one of the internal flights he made with them, I think it was on the 737-800, I think it was an 800. Anyway, 
uh, he was always had to, he always had this kind of thing that when he was going to board an aircraft for an internal flight like that, he'd wait for everyone just to get on board. You know, let all the the people crush each other and you know crush each other with the bags and stuff and get on, and then get his seat, put his bag in, sit down, close the doors and that. But no, he made the wrong decision because by the time he actually got on board the aircraft. There were so many passengers that had sort of 400,000 carry-on bags, duty-free bags, bags, handbags, laptop bags, bags with bags in, that he had nowhere to put his bag when he got to his seat and had to store it in a overhead locker at the front of the aircraft when he was sitting at the back. You know, it's interesting. The As a former cabin crew member, that is the, one of the first things that comes to mind is just how do you deal with the sheer the number of bags and then just the humanity of the whole thing uh taking that many bodies on a plane and all of these bad habits that we like to go on about uh putting it all together in one um and it's funny you mentioned vietnam airlines i flew them this past summer uh internally as well and it, it's exactly you nailed it right on the head in terms of his experience it's exactly that and we were forced in it they did it by zone and we managed to get in but as i'm sitting there watching the the horror of it all unfold and the chaos of the bags it, it was becomes a comic relief but, you know <laughs> when you're one of the first on it becomes comic relief when you're the last on and you have to start roaming the plane to find that spot it's not so funny i guess at that point and speaking as an ex-ramper i'm just shocked or, or shudder to think of 840 passengers bags underneath the uh, the plane and uh, even if they are going in cans, exactly how you're going to get everything in and lining up and and then getting everything out onto the belts when the plane actually lands. Or if you have a no-show... Uh, oh, gosh. And you've got to pull the luggage. I mean, pull the where bag. do you even begin with that? <laughs> that? That's just a horrific thought right there. So from one horrific thought on to another with the next story. And uh, it's uh, everyone's favourite airline here in the UK uh, and Matt's favourite story. So this one is on the BrusselsTimes.com. And uh, the headline, Ryanair is now Europe's biggest airline. So Lufthansa has lost the title of Europe's biggest airline to its Irish rival Ryanair. The passenger traffic record of the German airline group showed on Monday this week. Lufthansa, of which Belgium uh, Brussels Airlines is part, transported 145 million passengers last year, an increase of 2.3% on 2018. Uh, this was a new record for the group, but not enough to allow it to end uh, in the first place. Ryanair, which placed uh, a close second to the German group in 2018, ended last year on 152.4 million passengers, a 9% increase on 2018, according to the figures released earlier. The number of passengers uh, transported by Brussels Airlines in 2019 is not yet known, and its figures are englobed in those of the Eurowings entity to which the Belgian company belonged for a, time, a long time before becoming a semi-autonomous subsidiary with Lufthansa in mid-2019. The companies that made up Eurowings transported 28.1 million passengers last year, a 1.4% drop compared to 2018. So I must say it uh, doesn't surprise me at all, the fact that uh, they, they do transport as many passengers as they do. Um, obviously, I'm guessing that uh, you guys across there in uh, in Canada and have uh, haven't had the the opportunity to fly with uh, the the world's most prestigious airline. Oh, I've flown with the Ryanair. Most definitely. Oh, you have. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and your thoughts? 
Um, <laughs> you pay for what you get. <laughs> it does what it does. <laughs> yeah. I actually flew them in their original form. Uh, this would have been in, two th- let me think about this, 2000, when they were just running the 737-200s. Oh, wow, yeah. You would get in a plane and it would have, I think it was writing and you'd have a Romanian pilot and a, and a German cabin crew member. It was United Nations crew um, from that. And then, you know, in the recent form where everything's just like streamlined to the max. The one thing that shocks me, though, is if you think, you know, someone like Lufthansa, they're getting these records because they're using, you know, biggest planes uh, in production. Imagine Ryanair with 737-800s at, a, I believe it's 189 capacity, how much flying are they doing to have to get to that number and beat out Lufthansa? That's what shocks me in this whole thing. <laughs> yeah, especially when Lufthansa have the 380s. They've got, uh, I'm trying to think of their fleet now, 330s they've got as well, 3 Nev. Yeah, 747-8s. 8s, yeah. Yeah, mm. Nev, yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. It'd be interesting to see how far behind that list um, EasyJet come, actually, because obviously EasyJet are are just as, I think, big as such, I should say, but obviously not as big as um, the giant that is Ryanair. Hey, Armando. Yeah, like the guy said, uh, you know, it is what it is, and I, I know, it, you know, here, the guy, probably in the U.S., the closest thing we have is uh, Spirit or Allegiant, something like that, and, I mean, I still buy full fare tickets on Spirit and Allegiant knowing exactly what I'm going to get, but, yeah, they're just cattle cars, and over there in Europe, it's such a, just a common method of transportation. I've been, there's commuters, there's business to be done, there's vacations to be done, all in the same geographic sort of space as the Eastern US or Eastern Canada. You know, it's not, it's not very far. So um, it's just a way of life over there in Europe, which I personally enjoyed. I enjoyed just being able to hop over to Luton. No, nobody ever said that. Uh, over to Stansted <laughs> or, uh, or London South End and just catch a flight to, you know, Monaco or Nice or uh, Dubrovnik or something like that for, you know, 40, 40 pounds or something like that. It's just, I don't know that we have that, that model here. So you guys are doing something over there that that's pretty good. Well, next time you're this way, Armando, I'll take you over to uh, London Norwich airport. so nev uh next story for you is uh a story well on a on a great publication and also it's a story that involves a very forgiving parents yes it's on the sun.uk.uk the aviation central news uh, area that we all go to uh it says that an 18 year old flying fanatic has become the uk's youngest qualified commercial pilot after his mum sold their family home to fund his dream seth van beek who was born in 2001 got his license to fly passenger airliners after completing 18 months training on an 85000 pound course he set his sights on being a pilot since the age of eight and selfless single mum Francis, 42, irrelevant, uh, sold their three-bedroom home to fund his studies. Uh, Seth, who's from uh, Preston, London, is now the UK's youngest licensed commercial pilot. The record was previously held by Luke Ellsworth, who passed aged 19. Seth had to move to Greece for his intensive £85,000 flight school course and is now looking for a job and hopes to one day fly for British Airways. He said, flying has always been my dream. There was nothing else that I ever wanted to do and there is nothing that I would contemplate doing. 
you don't have to have a single epiphany where you realize that you want to be something or do something. It comes from experience. My mum was an avid traveler when she was younger. And when I was a boy, she'd take us on holidays to see the world. I loved everything about flying, even the fact that a 300 ton tube of metal can basically be shot up into the air and fly for up to 12 hours. Slightly unfortunate uh, turn of phrase there under the circumstances. Uh, as I grew up, uh, my love uh, of aviation became a passion and I'm so grateful that the experience of training didn't discourage me like training can. People have to chase their dreams and I've been so lucky being able to make my dream my career because of my mum. Uh, Seth attended Ignatia Aviation Training College after passing grueling entrance exams in uh, January 2018, aged 16. In April 2018, having turned 17 on March the 4th, he then began 18 months training at the prestigious Mediterranean Flight Academy. Uh, though he could have trained in the UK, Seth said he chose to learn in Greece so he could break the record. Seth set 14 exams alternating between learning theory and practical flying at Kavala International Airport every three months. Finance manager Francis, originally from Zimbabwe, said, when I start to think about everything, I get so overwhelmed. I didn't have a proper education, so I've always pushed Seth to make sure that he accomplishes what he really wants. For years, I've told him that as long as he has the faith and believes in himself, he will be able to achieve anything that he sets his mind to. That's how very nice. And it's quite often, of course, that people get their um, uh, private pilot's license before they get their driving license as well, don't they? So, um, yeah, good for him. I think it's a, a nice story. And nice parents as well. 85 grand, Nev. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think that's um, actually <laughs> by, by today's standards not too bad um, because normally you're into over 100K. For, uh, for most uh, training uh, because it's all you know there's there's hardly any or very little um, um, you know airline funded training now it's all mm. self-funding isn't it mm. so Armando next story is all for you yeah this is still a developing story this made national news here in the US at least um, so I'll, I'll read you this story which is now a couple days old but the FAA states that the pilots didn't seek permission, that Delta pilots didn't seek permission before dumping fuel that rained on school kids. Now, I, I suppose before I read it, you know, it, it is the news. They tend to be a little bit overdramatic, but um, the Delta pilots who bombarded elementary school playgrounds with jet fuel before making an emergency landing at Los Angeles International Airport failed to notify air traffic control of the need to jettison fuel and did not dump it at an optimal altitude. Uh, the FAA said Wednesday, uh, pilots are typically directed by controllers to maintain uh, or to direct it to an appropriate area to dump fuel, a protocol that did not occur last Tuesday. Uh, the FAA is continuing to investigate the circumstances behind this incident. Uh, Delta did make national news on Tuesday when the pi pilots of Flight 89 bound for Shanghai dumped the fuel before making an emergency landing moments after takeoff. Uh, Delta stated that the twin-engine Boeing 777 had experienced engine problems. Scores of people on the ground, including students at multiple elementary schools, were treated for eye and skin irritation, uh, according to Los Angeles County fire officials. Uh, decontamination sites were set up. No injuries required hospitalization, said the authorities. See, a former managing director for the National Transportation Safety Board said it might be too early to judge 
the decisions of a pilot trying to ensure the safety of his passengers and crew. I agree with that statement. A 777 flying nonstop to Shanghai is absolutely loaded with fuel, so loaded that to land right away after takeoff possesses a significant danger. Um, this person who is not involved in the investigation said guidelines usually call for fuel to be dumped over water or at an altitude above 10,000 feet so it can disperse and minimize environmental damage. But the rules change for a very heavy airplane that needs to get back on the ground. Um, so the article kind of goes on and on. And, and I just saw today on the news that some of the schools or at least teachers, teachers groups are suing Delta Airlines already two days after the event. Um, so I am interesting, interested to see what actually comes out of this. I know that a, any professional pilot w would know exactly where they are, especially taking off uh, from LA. You know that if you're gonna dump fuel, you, you have the water right there, the airport is I mean, less than a quarter mile from, from the Pacific Ocean. Um, so for them to dump fuel over the city of LA below 10,000 feet, some kind of, I'm gonna give them the benefit of that, some kind of aeronautical decision making must have happened where that was their only recourse because they know exactly, you know, they're, they're trained on how long it takes for that fuel to vaporize and, and sort of evaporate as the air and jet fuel is a little bit different. It's a little bit heavier. Um, so something else must have happened where they thought they needed to get that airplane back on the ground. I think I'll um, tell you what I was going to say to you, Amanda, there's a couple of things that immediately sprung to mind. Dumping fuel to get an aircraft down to the manufacturer stating minimum landing weight, uh, sorry, maximum landing weight is probably going to take, I don't know, 25 to 35 minutes uh, in the first place. In the second place, there's 13,000 foot of runway available at LAX. And again, this is me being the Monday morning quarterback, I, I can see. <laughs> but um, you can quite easily land a 777 uh, overweight with that amount of runway available to you. Um, so uh, I don't understand the rush for coming back, especially when it appeared to be a compressor stall and not a, an engine fire or a, you know, a, a separation of the engine or, or fan blade separation and that kind of thing. So with all that fuel on board, they could have just taken their time uh, on single engine with uh, the other engine at idle or, or low thrust and just worked it all out. But that just seems to be, from a novice's point of view, a bit of haste to the whole thing here. Exactly. And that's where we don't know where I, I would like to think that there was something else happening because it, it just like you, right? Monday morning quarterback, it, it would have been just as easy to head out east and they took off in a westbound direction over the water and then just circle over the water and then land back. You know, you declare an emergency and you land back eastbound. I don't know the, the weather that day, the winds may have precluded that. Um, not to mention uh, something that people don't really realize is uh, LA is surrounded by some pretty high mountains. So there, there's 12 and 13,000 foot peaks just, you know, just west and north of San Bernardino and uh, Burbank. There, there's some pretty tall peaks. So there, there could have been a calculation there that based on the winds, the, their only recourse was to get that airplane back on the ground in a westerly direction. And, and the, the mountains just kind of pop up from LA. So they, 
you know, the only place to dump fuel would have been over the city. Uh, you know, I, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm going to wait to see uh, what they come b- back with and, and see what the, probably the pilots union or Delta airlines at this point. Yeah. And be interested to see what the NTSB say about it as well. Wouldn't mm. it? Yeah. The video was quite good there that I saw on social media, but someone had taken um, of the aircraft flying uh, over the school um, with both the uh, the dump, yeah, the actual valves mm, releasing fuel. Yeah, but it was vertical video, so I'm oh. going give them three out of ten for that, I'm afraid. <laughs> So we shall not play it. <laughs> we shall not play it. No, no. So, uh, Vinny, the next story is uh, is one for you on Simple Flying. Yeah. So, simplefly.com. dot um, So, in this one, the headline is: The Boeing Triple Seven X is to offer Dreamliner style dimmable windows. Uh, so, Boeing is set to offer electronically dimmable windows, and they coined that as EDWs on its upcoming Triple Seven X aircraft. Uh, this follows the plane manufacturer's implementation on similar panels on its 787 Dreamliner, which uh, has been around for a little while now. Printed Electronics Roll reports that these electrochromic-based windows will be supplied by Gentex Corporation. The firm supplies EDWs for aerospace companies and will now be offering its products as an optional, uh, good point to note, uh, content for 777X. Uh, why this technology, this innovation, is often referred to as smart glass for the way that it tints the light voltage or heat uh, when it hits it. The glass can switch between translucent and transparent depending on the environment around it. It's particularly useful on aircraft for the way sunlight can overwhelmingly shine through the windows of them while in the air. The change in tint can help counter the glare of the sun and meanwhile it will also help reduce passenger dependence on air conditioning. EDWs can also be manually darkened or lightened by passengers to suit their preferences. Uh, flyers have already been benefiting from these types of windows on these 7 Dreamliners, and now Boeing could be taking this technology further uh, with the new 7X. And there's a great picture of the comparison of a um, window that's transparent and one that's uh, been blocked out. Uh, the EDWs made by Gentex feature high-speed transition between clear and dark. Uh, in addition, it's going to hold ultra-dark low-end transmission. So there will also be a thin film coating, which will help block harmful UV and IR rays, and will also reduce maintenance costs compared with the standard window shades on aircraft. Uh, the president and chief executive officer of Gentex, Steve Downing, spoke of how his company is aligning with Boeing to implement these clev- cleverly crafted windows. And a quote, we are proud to be continuing as we look to expand and improve our dimmable glass product offerings uh, in report to Printed Electronics World. And again, quote, with careful design and collaboration with Boeing, our teams have developed a robust EDW system that easily integrates to the airframe for optional control, aesthetic performance, and reliability. So testing is soon to begin. Uh, the the 777X has been in production since 2017, and airlines are preparing to receive the first units. Um, looks like Lufthansa has recently showed off its upcoming delivery, uh, which is going to receive this year as part of Boeing 777X testing. Altogether, the aircraft type is set to be a sleek model, especially with a whole innovation such as these windows, which we can expect to see uh, 777X operating flights from next year. Uh, Simplifying did reach out to Boeing for a comment on the implication of the demo windows, and a spokesman did share how his company is combining the best of the innovations. And quote, the new 777X incorporates the best of the passenger preferred 777 and 787 Dreamliner families with new advances to deliver the flight experience of the future. Just like the trip, the 787 Dreamliner, the 777X offers a more comfortable cabin 
altitude and humidity, a quieter cabin, and a soothing next-generation LED lighting. Windows on the 777X with available dimming are 30% larger and placed higher for more natural light and a view from every seat. So that's definitely something to look forward to um, on uh, aircraft of the future, apparently this year. Now, I must admit, I've, pl- I've traveled on the Dash 8 and Dash 9 Dreamliner and um, always pick a window seat for obvious reasons. And I, I, it says they're fast transition, but I, the ones that I've always tried have never been that fast in um, train, you know, no. changing their, their darkness. It, it just might just be me or, but I, you know, I don't know what you'll get, you guys think. The Yeah, you're right. Uh, in I think I remember flying on these... 77-8, uh, Air Canada had them in one of the original versions. They knew it took forever <laughs> for the thing to the point where you're sitting there pushing that button and it has like these uh, little green lights to sort of move as a selector and you kind of mm. wonder if something's going to happen and eventually it catches up. The part that I always find amusing is um, at least on the Dreamliner, you go into the lavatory in depending on what part of the cabin and there's a window there and there's this dimmable, it's the same window. <laughs> and as a gentleman, if you're standing in front of the blue, you sort of like, well, you, on the ground, you would think I need to close the window so no one sees, but it doesn't really matter at that altitude. But you stand there and push it as you're doing your thing and you're sort of watching and uh, I guess it's a bit of entertainment while you're doing your thing in the lavatory. So yeah, provide some entertainment, but it'd be nice to see the bigger windows um, and the UV and the heat and interesting about the maintenance costs uh, that they're going to save for these windows. Hey, I must admit, it's nice to have a, w- a room with a view, especially that particular kind of room. You know, it just, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what they need to do is turn the, the pullet opposite so you actually can look out, I suppose, to make it really <laughs> yeah. um, a place to be, but then you never get anybody out of there. <laughs> so moving on to the next story, uh, Jeff, this one is on CNBC and uh, rather disturbing story, I think, if you're not in the mood for pilotless aircraft. Exactly. Um, Airbus releases photos of automatic takeoffs. Uh, Airbus looks to have taken pilotless uh, commercial jet flight one step closer after revealing that one of its test aircraft has taken off automatically. The European plane maker said that in tests conducted at Toulouse Blancnac Airport on uh, December 18th, uh, an Air 50, uh, A350-1000 with two pilots sitting ready to take over conducted eight takeoffs on autopilot. Accompanying the press release was a photograph uh, showing a pilot sitting with one hand at rest as the plane pitched up and it photos in the article. Uh, We moved the throttle levers to the takeoff setting. We monitored the aircraft. It started to move and accelerate, automatically maintaining the runway center line at the exact rotation speed as entered in the system. The nose of the aircraft began to lift up automatically to take the expected takeoff pitch value, and a few seconds later, we were airborne, said Airbus test pilot uh, Captain Jan uh, Bofid. The technology behind the takeoff is different from the instrument landing system, ILS, currently used around the world, Airbus said in a press release Thursday. Instead, the company said the automatic takeoff was made possible by image recognition technology installed directly on the aircraft. The company says the next step is automatic vision-based landing and taxi sequences uh, taking place by mid-2020. And so this is uh, a march towards automation and Airbus says that the autopilot takeoff is an important milestone for its autonomous taxi takeoff and landing, atoll, 
project, uh, project uh, one of the several that Airbus is conducting on aviation autonomy. Two crashes involving the Boeing 737 MAX in uh, late uh, 2018 and early last year have raised questions about automation in flight. However, Airbus appears determined to take it to the next level. Pilot shortages and airline operators are keen to reduce costs that have led plane makers investigating greater levels of automation. And uh, Swiss Bank UBS has estimated that a pilot is typically in full control of a jet plane for an average of just seven minutes on each flight. Uh, we'll let Armando have his thoughts there. And it's also claimed that a single pilot commercial and cargo planes could take to the skies within the next uh, five years. A uh, bank claim transition to one operating pilot would lead to a cost-saving opportunity for the commercial jet industry of at least $15,000 in annual pilot training, fuel, and insurance costs. But uh, one 2017 survey uh, by UBS found that 63% of people oppose flying in a pilotless aircraft. So, hands up who's a fan of pilotless aircraft. I sit in the, mi <laughs> in the middle of this argument because I've now gotten a chance to ride the jump seat on a bunch of Airbus airplanes. And I feel like this is what they're doing anyways. Like I, d I don't ever see those guys even touch the, the stick. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought I'd already had automatic takeoff features. Uh, those guys are always so calm and collected, you know, and, and, and as I'm sitting here pondering what my future in aviation may be, uh, I'm just thinking like, man, I, I, I love the idea of having a yoke, right? So slow, I guess slowly I'm moving more towards, hopefully flying a Boeing product because I, I don't see those. They're, they're just too relaxed up there. I'm just sitting there just, you know, smiling in the back, just going, Oh my gosh, they're not doing anything. They literally take off and then hit a couple buttons. And for the next three and a half hours, they just, you know, sit there and review procedures. I'm sure that's what they all do, but um, yeah, it's <laughs> take off and chill. Yeah. It's the craziest thing. <laughs> well, at least you've had that experience now. <laughs> It is it is pretty cool to jump seat on a bunch of, of different aircraft and, um, you know, like you guys were talking about the cabin crew, now I start to appreciate more things. You know, we did a story on the uh, the new CRJ that's coming out that's got, you know, kind of the, the regional airliner of the future and the new ERJ-175 has got super wide aisles for the cabin crew and it's actually really comfortable. But then that's another really automated airplane, the ERJ-175 looks almost like an Airbus inside where they, the, the guys just hit a couple buttons and, and, you know, and sit around for two hours. I'm like, ah, man, maybe I'll stick with flying something smaller that, that you actually have to fly. But I don't know. That's just me. Nev, what do you think about all this pilotless nonsense? Oh, dear. Um, well, I do not understand at all the purpose of an automatic takeoff. Um, there's stuff that can happen. Um, and runway incursions uh, from aircraft, people, animals. Now, I'm sure all the software and all the visually enhanced business sorts all that out. Um, and obviously, you know, the skipper or the first officer can take over if something went wrong. But these areas of flight are really critical. Now, automatic landings in low vis, you know, Cat 3 mm. procedures, totally get that. Totally understand why that's uh, useful to have. Um, but what is the purpose of automatically 
taking off. I, I can't, I mean, I'm sure somebody has researched it and I'm sure someone's got a perfectly good explanation, but I cannot think of one instance, apart from as Graham Haley says in the chat room, you know, uh, low, very low vis ops and stuff like that. I just do not understand it. I cannot understand why you need to do that. Uh, when it's all about, especially the, you know, the 80 knots to V1 bit, well, that where, you know, if something goes wrong at that point, then obviously the crew need to intervene. And I'm sure the system could intervene as well, probably. But I, a bit like autonomous cars in the UK, I don't understand. What, why do you need them? <laughs> Sorry. The yeah. thought of an autonomous car in the UK terrifies me. Yeah, yeah, I, the, I, I, I don't understand it either. So, um, in yeah, I, in full marks to Airbus and the software guys and all the rest of it that, that do all the work on this. It's very clever technology, and certainly things like you know head-up displays, that kind of thing. I think that's very valuable. Um, but um, automatic takeoff uh having set takeoff thrust don't see the point why would you do it hmm. so moving on to the next story this one is on simpleflying.com uh, and uh, it's about an airline that we've uh, seen and heard of before on the show uh the airbus the headliner says the airbus a350 is being seriously considered by highfly so the highfly as we all know is a wet lease operator uh, that uh, uses the A380 but focusing on a mainly wide body fleet the airline operates the A330, A340 and even as we said the 380. But what about the A350? Simple Flying caught up with CEO High Fly Dr. Paulo Mapuri to ask whether the 350 was in the airline's future plan. So it says here that does High Fly want the A350? So they say, um, obviously, that the airline is well invested in wide-bodied aircraft and committed to Airbus. It's almost a no-brainer that the A350 would arrive at some point. Simple Flying asked Dr. Mapuri whether High Fly would ever consider the 350 for its operations. So he said that uh, it's a fantastic aircraft, it's in strong demand, but we need to balance the simplicity of the fleet against the positive and the negative aspects. For a company like HiFly, we do try to cover the market needs, but not to diversify too much, he said. Already, HiFly is an all-Airbus airline. In fact, it's always been since it was incorporated in 2005. It has operated a total of 38 aircraft, according to plane spotters, including in its past fleet are A310s, A320s, as well as 17 A340s of which it still operates nine of the type. Uh, with firm plans to phase out the A340 in the next couple of years and a growing demand for wet lease services, what would it take for HiFly to add the A350 to its order books? Well, HiFly is keen to expand its fleet. In June last year, Dr. Mapiri reported by CH Aviation to have alluded to targeting a fleet of 100 aircraft eventually, he said. Uh, he said that uh, he said I think we can grow a lot more. He said I think we could grow eventually to over a hundred aircraft. This year alone, we're phasing in five aircraft. Over the next ten years, we could reach a hundred aircraft probably sooner. Right now, the airline has nine more A330 Neo set to join its fleet, adding to uh, to one it all received uh, um, as. Um, 
the end of last year in summer. Uh, ten of these are likely to serve as replacements for the nine A340s that are in the process of being phased out. The A330-900 is an incredibly versatile aircraft, they said, and offers great flexibility and for high-fly uh, customers. However, it lacks the passenger capacity and larger range uh, like the A350 and indeed the A380, which high-fly, of course, as we know, has one. Nenev, you got a chance to um, get up close and personal with one of these uh, A380 uh, high-flies, I think, at Farnborough a few years yes, back? Yes, it was, and uh, very nice it was too, I've got to say. Um, and, uh, yeah, I was very impressed. Uh, this one was an ex-Singapore uh, A380, wasn't it? And uh, But, uh, yeah, we're very lucky to get on there and uh, did some filming with Captain Al as well. And, uh, yeah, very, very nice aircraft too, I thought. Um, plenty of room too, especially in the economy section. So, But I've yet to fly on an A380. So uh, one of these days I will try and find a route which uh, runs it, which I can get onto. Perhaps the next Dubai Air Show, Nev. They, uh, BA might put their 380 on the service. You never know. So moving on to the next story then, Nev. Uh, this one on uh, this is on a very official website. It is yes, the AAIB. Um, now uh, they are the regulatory authority for uh, reporting on air accidents, uh, and it says that an Airbus A three twenty dash two one four registration Golf Echo Zulu Tango Delta. So we know what. Uh, um, airline that was don't we uh took off with insufficient thrust to meet regulatory requirements at lisbon airport on the 24th of april 2019 during pre-flight preparations at lisbon airport portugal pilots of the airbus a32214 completed a takeoff performance calculation for a takeoff from taxiway uniform 5 during subsequent replanning, the crew calculated performance using the full length of the runway, giving an additional 1,395 metres of runway for the calculation. Uh, the aircraft took off from Uniform 5, but with lower thrust than was required because the calculation had assumed that there was 1,395 metres more runway available than was the case from Uniform 5. Uh, the aircraft passed the upwind uh, end of the runway at 100 feet above aerodrome level. Uh, the operator had another identical event 14 days later. In both cases, the procedural barrier of cross-checking the one runway distance against the aerodrome ground chart failed to prevent the error. Following this event, the operator acted to raise awareness of the issue with its crews and engaged with the aircraft manufacturer to review possible technical developments which might prevent a recurrence of these type of events. One safety recommendation is made to mitigate the risk of further confusion relating to takeoff positions. And um, it's always the way, isn't it? Uh, the, the flying bit is quite straightforward, but it's all about the prep. No matter what it is, where it's the loading of the aircraft, center of gravity, takeoff performance, um, and especially if something changes, because again, you know, you have situations at many airports where you expect to have, you know, a full length runway departure, and then suddenly you're offered a uh, intersection departure, so you've got to do lots of new calculations and, and that kind of stuff. But the fact this has happened twice uh, within a fortnight. Um, be interesting to see if it was the same crew, but um, yeah, um, that's not uh, not good. What, what do you think about that, uh, Amanda? Yeah, you know, Captain Jeff and Captain Nick have done quite a few segments talking about 
uh, intersection takeoffs. And um, in, in those types of airliners, there are pre-programmed, or generally there's pre-programmed uh, performance calculations where you can actually put in, hey, I'm taking off on runway one, three left and taxiway uniform five or something like that. And it, and it will do all those calculations for you. Um, yeah, just like the article said, you know, it, it is from the AIB. So they've, they've obviously skipped a step somewhere there. You, ha you have to, even when you're operating either in a rushed environment, in a commercial environment, you still have to maintain some of the basics of aviation. And I think it's easy to fall into a trap where all of the numbers, all of the performance calculations are given to you either by a dispatch, a dispatch uh, function or the computer itself. And, uh, I could see how it would be easy to fall into a trap where you just assume all of the numbers are correct and then, and then just do it. Um, however, you know, I don't know how it is in the commercial with large commercial airliners in the, in the military, at least we had, we always timed to take off and we always had a point a designated point on the runway every time you took a, a runway, whether you're familiar with it or not, where you would say, if we're not airborne by this, by this moment, by this point, whether it's a, uh, you know, distance remaining marker or a certain taxiway, if we're not airborne by this point, you have to make a decision, either keep it on the ground or, or something. And I even do the same thing in, in a Cessna 182 when I'm, when I'm taking off uh, flying skydivers, I, there's a there's a just a, a tiny little uh, I think it's a well cover on the side of the runway and my personal uh, minimums is if my wheels are not off the ground by that well cover I'm gonna shut that engine down and literally shut it down pull the fuel from it because it's gonna be an, an emotional event to stop this Cessna with five people aboard um, before I go off the grass on the other end um, so I think it's just easy to forget some of those basics in aviation and, and to be crossing the departure threshold at a hundred feet in an Airbus is, um, yeah, there obviously some, there was a breakdown there somewhere. What about our uh, guests uh, for the show this evening? What are your thoughts on the, on the story? Well, I'd say that, um, agreeing largely a lot what's already been said, but, um, going back to the part there with the automatic takeoffs, that was what I was thinking of and thinking, okay, well, if um, people are trusting computers to give the, uh, the values and, and the, the amounts to take off or the lengths to take off, um, are people sort of stepping away from the actual uh, review or quality control essentially of, of the, the prep work to make sure everything's correct. And, and so funny that it's also an Airbus in this case, as it was with the previous, but, um, just wanting to make sure that the people that count, you know, re rejig the numbers and, and you don't want to wind up with some sort of equivalent of um, trusting a computer or something like a Gimli glider where you do wrong calculations. Mm. So uh, actually just look at the, one of the comments in the chat room, Stephen H says, uh, would the, would the full autopilot system have made this mistake? Mm. Mm. Yeah, and and right there in the chat room. So John uh, Altro mentions that it, it does actually meet the requirements. Uh, according to him, the climb requirement is 35 feet across the departure end. So that's just an area that I'm not familiar with. Um, I, to me, that seems awful low, 35 feet at the departure end. But um, but perhaps you know, as as John, I defer to him. He's been doing this a lot longer than I have. Mm. Uh, may, maybe it is 
a point of concern, but perfectly within um, yeah, I mean, either it, limitations yeah, or regulations. Thirty-five feet is, is the um, is the requirement. But again, you know, you've got to ask yourself: was that a you know a flex takeoff, you know, reduced thrust takeoff as as well? Um, there's a whole load of things that go in there. And it, again, it could be because the, the, the again, I'm, I'm guessing, of course, but it might be that the crew were rushed, um, didn't jump, double check the figures. But it's interesting that it happened again. A fortnight later, that suggests there's perhaps something wrong with the uh, system of calculation or the order in which one does things. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, the, the, you can actually read the report there uh, on the AAIB, but it's uh, very long. And uh, I don't really want to spend the whole show <laughs> and half the night going through it. But <laughs> it is worth reading. We'll, we'll put that in the show notes. I'll tell you what we'll do, Nev. I'll, uh, I'll invite an Airbus uh, 320 pilot on the show next week, yeah? What a good idea. Hmm. So we don't know any of those, do we? <laughs> so moving on to the last story for the commercial news segment tonight. And uh, Armando, I think this is safe to say this is one of the best stories uh, to ever come out of the Mail Online. Uh, yeah. A Japanese woman was asked by an airline to take a pregnancy test <laughs> before boarding a flight to a U.S. island. <laughs> Midori Nishida was traveling from Hong Kong to Saipan to visit her parents when she was asked by the staff at Hong Kong Express Airways to prove she was not pregnant as a part of a fit-to-fly assessment. After telling the crew she was not pregnant, Nishida was taken to the toilet by an employee who made her urinate on a strip test before they would allow her to get on an airplane. Despite already marking on a check-in questionnaire that she was not pregnant, Nishida was still asked to take the test. The result was negative, and the 25-year-old was allowed to board. Saipan is a U.S. territory, and the island is part of the Northern Mariana Islands in the Pacific. The airline reportedly said the test was required to ensure U.S. immigration laws were not being undermined. Nishida called the experience humiliating and frustrating. I would tend to agree with her. Hong Kong Express Airways apologized for the incident and said the firm was reviewing the policy in a statement to the Wall Street Journal. Uh, the airline said, in a response to concerns raised by authorities in Saipan, we took actions on flights to Saipan from February 2019 to help ensure U.S. immigration laws were not being undermined. It's the Department of Redundancy Department. Uh, we apologize to everyone uh, unreserved, unreservedly to anyone who has been affected by this uh, we have immediately suspended the practice while we review it. Uh, yeah. So, oh, uh, I don't even know what to say about that. I can't imagine the humiliation of being checking into your flight. It, you know, and we were talking, we were just talking about 800 passengers yeah. on an A380. Can you imagine if any, if you had to, if you suspect that any. Can you, can you imagine the question, the question at the check-in desk, you know, oh, good, good morning, uh, uh, sir. Uh, did you pack your own suitcase? Have you any sharp items in there? Any liquids? Uh, are you pregnant? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes. <laughs> uh, any last thoughts before we move on? And uh, Anyone? Uh, no, because it'll get us taken off air. <laughs> 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 yeah. Oh, so moving uh, moving swiftly on then, uh, that was uh, the last story in the commercial news segment. So uh, we're going to hand things over to Nev to introduce the next part of the show, which I'm sure you've all been waiting for. 
Yes, and uh, it's uh, more of the same, uh, more of the interview that Nick did uh, with John Hutchinson. And uh, once again, I cannot thank Nick enough for doing this. And it was a, it was a really interesting insight uh, to John's career uh, in the RAF and the, the lead up to when he became skipper on the Concorde. I'm going to take you back to an incident uh, you mentioned in your book. I love that you accidentally overflew London by uh, accident, but um, unlike the famous hunter pilot uh, Alan Pollock, uh, you decided not to beat up the Houses of Parliament and fly under Tower Bridge, but you said hello to your old school instead. What was that like? Well, well this c comes into the category of you should never do anything in flying if you haven't planned it properly. <laughs> I had been authorised to go on a general handling detail. And I thought, hmm, mum and dad have this school in Hartenden, just north of London. It's somewhere south of Worksop. I think I'll go down and beat them up instead of doing my general handling. So I just set off southwards. And eventually I was thinking, I think I ought to have seen Hartenden by now. And by now I was flying at about six, seven thousand feet, eight thousand feet, something like that, below cloud. And I suddenly became aware of the fact that I was now flying over the biggest conurbation that I had ever seen. And the next thing I saw was a river running across my path. And I looked to the left and there was the Tower of London. And I looked to the right and there were the Houses of Parliament. And I thought, oh, expletive, ducked up into the cloud so that nobody could see me, turned rapidly northwards and fled back up to Worksop. Never did find Hartenden, never did beat up my parents. <laughs> and I landed at Worksop with an absolute teaspoonful of fuel left. I was a very lucky chap. I spent months afterwards in mortal fear that I would be caught out. You never did come clean then? I never came clean about <laughs> it at all. And as you may or may not know, I do a lot of lecturing on cruise ships. And about three years ago, I was on this cruise ship and I do I, I tell this story in one of my lectures and this chap came up to me after the lecture he said hmm he said very interesting that story you told about flying over London he said I, I was an air traffic controller at London in 1957 and I remember seeing an airplane coming down from the north into the Heathrow control zone and then fleeing back up north again so he had spotted me, but they never identified me. Excellent. <laughs> well, you must have been very sharp-eyed. Uh, by now, you've, uh, you've met Sue, your, your lovely wife. Um, Thorny Island to Kinloss, at the other end of the country where you were going to find Fly Shackleton, seems an awful long way away, but it was classic of the Air Force uh, to try and keep you apart, wasn't it? Yes, we, we, we weren't married at this point. Um, 
Nick, um, we we got married when I was actually in Singapore. Oh. And the way I got married, since we're on that subject, was I went out, as I think I probably said, with the, no, I'm not sure I did, but I actually went out with the very first Shackleton to go to 205 Squadron. And what was happening was that over a period of about six or nine months, the Shackleton Squadron at Changi was building up, and the Sunderland Squadron up at Salita on the north end of Singapore was running down. So I did three ferry trips from Aldergrove out to Changi. And it was on one of these things that I came back early to do this ferry trip, got married, had my two weeks honeymoon, and then went out to Aldergrove to ferry and yet another Shackleton out to Singapore. And then Sue subsequently came out to join me there. At the time I was at Thorny Island, I was engaged to Sue. And she was still nursing at St. Thomas's Hospital then. All right. Uh, actually, I'm, I wasn't engaged to her when I was at Thorny Island. No, 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 I wasn't. She was my girlfriend, whom I'd met at dancing classes when I was 15. <laughs> That's a very sensible thing to do if you're looking for a girlfriend, I suspect. <laughs> what, going to dancing classes? Yes. Mm, yes. <laughs> Not that I can dance. <laughs> And when I was, uh, I did the, the multi-engine conversion at, um, on Tavastis at Thorny Island and then went up to Kinloss to do the OCU and Sue came up to see me at some point during that OCU time and I proposed to Sue at this very romantic setting. Mm, it is, it's With lovely. the castle there. And the monster. And, and of course, this is long before... English Heritage or National Trust or Scottish Heritage or whatever it is that runs it now with all sorts of barriers and mm. railings and things. I mean, it was just the castle as it was, you know, sitting there. And I'm sitting there on a sort of escarpment looking down on the castle. And the pair of us were there and I proposed to her in that wonderful setting. Well done. And, uh, and she accepted me. <laughs> that I find remarkable. <laughs> so do I. <laughs> marvelous. Now I'm I'm lingering in your Shackleton time because it was a, a marvelous airplane. How serviceable were the Shackleton engines? I only ask this because whenever I met a Shackleton pilot, he would always glumly say, "Piston broke." Well, that's very interesting. You see, I've got perhaps I've got a very selective brain that just rubs out all these inconvenient things. I don't remember any problems. To me, the Rolls-Royce Griffin engine was a very serviceable engine. Well, I'm very glad to hear it. Um, and I've got no memories of endless shutdowns or problems with it at all. Excellent, excellent. Now, I uh, see you finished your QFI course at Little Rissy uh, as a B1 instructor. That's pretty rare. Did you enjoy instructing? I don't know how I did that. It was extremely rare. Oh. Yeah, it doesn't happen very often at all. Uh, don't ask me how I managed to do that, because well, I have no idea. You must have been an exceptional student instructor. Well, maybe. I don't know. My, my, my students who came along subsequently would be the people to judge that, not me. 
Now, you had quite a list of interesting students at Syaston. Um, who was your most memorable? Well, I suppose, in a way, it would be Angus, the Marquis of Clydesdale, who subsequently went on to become the Duke of Hamilton. Ah, excellent. And he was a phenomenal character. I mean, he was a, a true British aristocrat, plus, plus, plus. Have you stayed friends? Well, sadly, no is the answer to that. You know, he went on to do whatever he did in the Air Force. He then went off to look after, he became the Duke of Hamilton when his father died. And very sadly ended up getting Alzheimer's, I think. Oh dear. And really um, didn't know what was going on anymore. And I, I, I always wish now that I had kept in touch with him, and I didn't. Mm. It's one of my regrets because he was a very colourful character who, who brightened the world enormously. Excellent, excellent. Um, but uh, you know, and another one was Jerry Lee, who went on to become a chief test pilot at Wharton, mm. and was very much involved with with the tornado. And I think also with the Eurofighter. So he was a very capable, capable pilot. And I've already mentioned the one I was talking about that I always feel that I shouldn't have perhaps got him through, but there we are. Uh, so no, I've had some wonderful students and there's some that I do keep in touch with um, who ended up in BOAC. So, uh, I do meet some of my old students from time to time. Excellent, excellent. Before we leave your time in the Air Force, any particular memories uh, that come to mind that we've missed out? Now, all I'd say about that eight years in the Air Force is that I am profoundly grateful to the Air Force for giving me the most fantastic training, for giving me the opportunity to fly all these different aeroplanes. Um, it was a, a grounding second to none, second to none. And I, I personally think all pilots should start their flying as military pilots because the military training, certainly when I was involved in it, and is, is just superb. And one of the things I've got a very strong feeling about is sort of recovery from unusual attitudes, which, you know, the, the Air Force really concentrated on that as, as an element in your flying training, as I'm sure you will agree. I hope you will. Oh, absolutely, yes. Uh, and then making, having to make a uh, instrument recovery on just the turn and slip. On the turn and slip. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly Those so. Those are the days. No, exactly so. And I, I think that's an element of training in the civil world that has been lacking. I think there is now a realisation, as I understand it, that it is now recognised as being an important element of training. A bit late in the day, I, uh, and I agree. And the trouble is that it would all be done on simulators, and nobody really has a simulator that can accurately reproduce the sort of things that you might end up with during a jet upset. No. But we're, we're straying from the subject. Now, I, I read that, like mine, your departure from the RAF, excuse me, 
coincided with the downturn in the civil world and that employment was hard to find. Uh, you had a wife and two children and yep. a big Rhodesian Ridgeback. That must have been a <coughs> bit of a concern for you. <coughs> yes, it was. I think I, before we actually talk about leaving the Air Force, I think I should mention that my departure from the Air Force was somewhat delayed. In February 1960, Sue and I had gone skiing in Zermatt. And I'd come back from this skiing holiday. This was with the RAF Ski and Winter Sports Association. And I went back to Sarsten, having visited my parents at their school, Sue's parents. He was a rector at Wheatimston, a town near St Albans. And they had a nursery school incorporated into the rectory. I'd gone up to Sarsden. I was back instructing. And I suddenly started feeling unwell. And then I'd feel all right. And gradually the periods I was feeling unwell got greater and greater. And I had to say to my boss, I'm sorry. Boss, uh, you know, I'm just not up to it. I'm, there's something wrong. The senior medical officer came to see me. I'm not going to mention his name. And he thought I'd got, oh, I can't remember, he thought I'd got pneumonia, he thought I'd got this, he thought I'd got that. And then one day he was off duty and a young doctor who'd just come back from Aden came in to have a look at me. And I'll never forget this. At this stage I was now having huge fevers and shaking and sweating. And he just came in and he looked at me and he said, where have you been? And I said, I've come back from Zermatt, why? And you haven't been anywhere else? I said, no. He said, well, I can tell you what you've got. You've got typhoid. Uh, he said, obviously, the tests will have to confirm that. But he said, I've seen typhoid before. And the fact of the matter is typhoid is not something that presents itself as a problem in this country. And the senior medical officer had never seen anybody with typhoid. And he just didn't identify it. Sue and I, Sue was diagnosed with typhoid as well. And of course, the proverbial hit the fan then because we'd been to visit these schools. They had to shut the schools down, fumigate the schools. The Ministry of Health came all over the place. We were in hospital for eight weeks. Um, and at the end of this eight weeks, and part of the problem with typhoid is that the, the risk is that you could end up as a typhoid carrier. And that's basically why we're in for eight weeks. And then uh, I had to sort of send specimens off to path labs for about three years afterwards, mm. just to absolutely belt and braces to ensure that neither of us uh, had ended up as typhoid carriers, because that has serious implications if you end up as a carrier. But the Air Force decided that since I was leaving the Air Force, they didn't want to discharge me um, unless I was deemed to be fully fit. So they sent me to Headley Court, RAF Headley Court. Oh, lovely place. Where I had the most wonderful time. Poor old Sue had to 
go back to looking after the kids. And I swanned around in Headley Court for a month. Well, it's great. It's actually not far from uh, where I was brought up and uh, visited a few Air Force friends who were ejected and ended up there. Well, that's what the place was full of, people mm. with those sort of injuries. I felt a complete fraud <laughs> there, I tell you. And it was just a wonderful place to be. So um, my departure, as I say, from the Air Force was delayed as a result of all this. And as you've said, there was absolutely nothing going on in the airline world at that time. And I was literally writing to every flying school I could think of. I'd, oh, by the way, I'd done my commercial pilot's license exam papers on a, as a correspondence course mm -hmm. while I was in hospital with this typhoid. Well, that was handy. Which was handy. I had eight weeks where I had nothing else to do. Um, and nothing, nothing, nothing. All sort of negative, negative, negative. And I just happened to walk in to McAlpine Aviation at Luton Airport, knocking on the door, anything doing. And it was on a day when they'd just established that one of their pilots was going to have to lose his, well, had lost his license for a medical condition. Oh, dear. And he actually stayed on. Um, as a sort of operations manager in McAlpine's and became a great personal friend of mine, a chap called Topsy Turner, who flew Lysanders during the war into oh, wow. France. Oh, dangerous job. Dangerous job, absolutely indeed. He had some stories to tell. So poor old Topsy had lost his license and I got the job. And that was a very interesting three years I spent at McAlpine's. It involved uh, a range of flying from... Uh, Airways air, air flying in the Piaggio 166 on the Cessna 310, going to Europe all around the UK, to flying at the other end of the spectrum, an airplane called the Helio Courier, short takeoff and landing airplane, a very versatile aircraft for that sort of work, and that involved basically landing on little farm strips, paddocks, at Newmarket, that sort of thing, and taking jockeys and owners and trainers to race meetings. Mm. And it was fascinating. I mean, I got to know the English countryside quite intimately because a lot of this flying had to be done using a one-inch-to-the-mile ordnance survey map. You'd get sort of approximately to the destination and then you were sort of following it along on the ordnance survey map, going along this road here to the telephone box, turning right, and, and there's your field that you're landing in. Excellent. Very interesting flying. Yeah, you were pretty much a one-man band, weren't you? Yep, there was one other pilot um, for a while, and then we got a third one. I I became chief pilot of this of this great <laughs> enterprise. No, it was it was fantastic flying, and Kenneth McAlpine, who was the sort of uh, my ultimate boss, was a wonderful man. Really super trap. What are we going to do about that phone? Let it ring or? What a legend, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> yes, of course, the phone always rings, doesn't it? The most inconvenient part. Uh, but uh, we'll pick it up uh, next week on part four, where you can hear more of John's aviation escapades. What did you do about the phone in the end, then, Nev? Uh, we let it ring. <laughs> <laughs> and went to answer phone. <laughs>
gave me an opportunity love, to change the battery and the camera as well. <laughs> I'm completely loving this series, Nev. I, it's what a wonderful interview. And I, I love how open he is about his personal life and his career. It's just uh, great to hear that. And I, I couldn't help but think, you know, I never got a call sign in the Air Force. And oh. I want something like Topsy. You know, Topsy Turner. Yeah. Right? Maybe we'll just put it out to the to the listeners or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's a very 1950s, 1960s expression, isn't it? For those uh, those brave aviators of the past. So, uh, uh, yeah, but um, no, great, uh, great insight from John about his, uh, his time in the RAF. Obviously, we've got a lot more to play out, especially about his Concorde career as well. But actually, I, I think that uh, his military uh, service and the things that he's done are just as interesting as uh, the, his most recent find as well. So we're going to hand things uh, over to the uh, for the next part of the show to Armando. So, uh, Armando, over to you. Yeah, speaking of military, if you guys are ready to go, we've got a couple stories for this week, and then we'll get to talking to uh, Jeff and Vinny. Yeah, so if everyone's ready, let's go. Ready. So despite the link that's in your show notes, completely ignore that. This has nothing to do with the January heat wave. Uh, from the Middletown Press, uh, details about why the Iranian Air Defense Forces mistook a Ukrainian airliner for a cruise missile remain murky. But one thing is clear that the safeguards for operating surface-to-air missiles are supposed to, that are supposed to prevent that kind of mistaken identity, all of them failed. The error, which killed all 176 people aboard the airplane on uh, Wednesday, is probably the result of multiple layers of failure that extend high into the high levels of government and the military. Instead, said uh, Stephen Zaloga, senior analyst for missile systems at the Teal Group. There are any number of potential problems here. This incident strongly suggests that the methodology has failed and the technology has failed as well. There should have been something worked out to prevent fratricide. Iran has vowed to conduct a thorough investigation of what happened and bring the culprits to justice. Among the questions that remain is why authorities allowed civilian flights to operate during the tense hours after its attack on the Iraqi bases. Ukrainian Air, uh, International Airlines Flight 752 was flying in a very different manner than the cruise missile it was supposedly mistaken for. It was following normal uh, departure path from Tehran's airport and was clearly transmitting its identity when it was taking down. The highly effective weapon against short-range threats, the SA-15, was used in the strike early Wednesday. Uh, it has a guidance system that's designed for use in war zones and can't by itself easily distinguish between airliners, cruise missiles, or other military aircraft. As a result, nations that deploy the TOR or the SA-15 typically link them into a broader air defense command system capable of tracking civilian airplanes. In those circumstances, soldiers operating the missile batteries aren't supposed to fire them without approval from higher authorities. Flight 752, a Boeing 737-800, was positioned for civilian radars and the newest flight tracking system that uses global positioning data, um, which is ADSB. Uh, the TOR radar may not have been able to discern between civilian and military targets and other systems in Iran were, were tracking the airplane 
that information should have been available to the missile battery commanders. Um, the article kind of goes on to talk about how what an investigation would look like and how some of the initial, we'll just call it information that came from the Iranian government was possibly misleading, but I, you know, they were probably trying to figure things out themselves. Um, so this will be a continuing story, a, a developing story, and we'll see what eventually comes out of this. If, if we in the Western hemisphere ever find out the true causes, but um, either way, you know, it's a tragic loss of life. It's not, the first time this has happened by any means you know we mm. talked about it on the 300th where um, there have been you know probably a dozen airliners mistakenly taken down by a military system over the years i think it's a bit poor we're not going to drag on with the with the story but it is i think it's, it's poor amanda that in this day and age everyone's got the availability to use um flight radar 24 flight tracker there's there's apps out there other different apps as well which you can use to track um aircraft and military aircraft as well if you use a, a web-based browser um and you know for them not to know this was a commercial airliner i just think is um yeah the excuses are piling up i think yeah my just my my initial take on it is is they probably decentralized that control so as the article says, usually there's there's different echelons of command that would uh, verify uh, and give approval before something like this happens, or before a missile is shot. But it is a technique, not just by Iran, by anybody, to just decentralize control and say, well, if they are going to attack, it is highly possible that they're going to attack our command and control nodes. Therefore, you guys have the authority out in the field to make your own decisions. Mm. Um, that is by no means I have, you know, no, that's just my own personal sort of assessment and, and idea of what may have happened here. So moving on to the next story, this one is on the nationalinterest.org uh, website and uh, obviously as we do each week, Matt will put the show notes in the, uh, well, the show notes for the websites and stuff in there, but this, this story's got an awesome picture on, honestly, this is uh, one of these greats that something like Jonathan Warner would uh, ping to us, but the headline, the supercharged F-15 EX fighter, why is this combat air pilot loves it? So the ability to deploy diverse fighter fleet with complementary capabilities is critical to our global air superiority. Now more than ever, our nation needs to be prepared to take on new challenges and emerging threats from across the globe. Some of America's most forward-thinking military leaders are actively working toward a goal by proposing to develop a diverse future fleet of fighters that can stop our enemies in their tracks on multiple fronts. Over the career, his career, uh, he conducted more than 600 combat missions, this chap did, flying multiple aircraft, none exhibited the uh, importance of a mixed force more than in 1974-75, when the entire fleet of F-14 Tomcats were grounded due to issues with their rear stabilizers. He said that we immediately flexed our capabilities by deploying my, uh, his unit on the USS Enterprise and its fleet of four, uh, F-4 Phantoms in order to continue the fight and protect our soldiers on the ground. Right now, the US Air Force has a chance to use that same successful strategy by rejuvenating its fighter fleet with the new F-15EX fighter, and it couldn't come at more opportune time. The Air Force's current fleet of fighter aircraft is the smallest in history. 
It also needs modernization. Though the fleet of F-35s is growing, uh, progress is slow and uh, puts uh, battle readiness at a serious risk. The problem was amplified after the early termination of the F-22 program. Uh, it says here the Air Force needs to invest in a fighter that can it can deploy immediately. Uh, the smartest choice is the supercharged F-15EX. Its ability to carry more weapons, to fly higher and faster than any other aircraft, and at an affordable $27,000 per flight hour cost is enormous value for our military and the taxpayer. By modifying an existing proven airframe uh, uh, with an un defeated air-to-air -air combat record, the Air Force can take advantage of existing manufacturing processes and ground support infrastructure without the need to, for extensive pilot retraining. Uh, this will allow the military to deploy the F-15EX quickly with little added cost to the American taxpayer, saving uh, valuable funds for the F-35 production. In addition, it's the perfect complement to pair with the F-35 and guarantee air-to-ground and air-to-air -air superiority for the Air Force. The F-15 EX carrying 22 missiles is the tactical fighter that provides the payload range and speed for F-35 cannot. It's also the perfect fighter to carry and deploy the future hypersonic weapon systems that cannot fit inside the internal bays of fighters like the F-35. With the growing threats abroad, including from nations like China and Russia that seek to take uh, America's top spot on the world's economic and military stages, we need to deploy a fighter fleet that can guarantee global air superiority. You can't do that with one devoted aircraft. It takes the right mix of diverse and complementary capabilities. Investing in the supercharged F-15EX now is the right choice to immediately slay into the Air Force's existing fleet. If we don't, America will be exposed to an increased risk of air attack from our foreign adversaries. I have to say, Armando, um, I, I, I'm a big lover of this photograph and this particular story. Yeah, this is it, it. It is a great photograph with a B2 in the background. Um, yeah, this is you know we've done a couple stories already on the F15EX uh, and Captain Jeff, the handsome Captain Jeff has uh, <laughs> he was an F15 pilot, so he's done a couple things um, on the evolution of the F15. But yeah, like you know, so many other uh, aircraft that we've talked about, you know, the the 707, the KC130 or C135 fleet, the B52s, F16s, A10s. You know, with a little bit of a refurbishment, they are incredibly capable uh, aircraft still into the 2020s. They'll end up being like the B-52 and being 100 years old. Yeah, you never know. <laughs> $27,000 an hour to steal. Bargain. Nev, don't drone on too much with this next story, Nev. Uh, no, I won't. I'll try not to. But we do mention the military drones. We have mentioned them quite a bit in the past, actually, on the show. Uh, this is from uh, airforcetechnology.com, and it says that the uh, UK uh, RAF in April is set to stand up a new squadron to bring swarming drones into service and access their capabilities. The technology originally announced by former Defence Secretary Gavin Williamson was due to be in service by the end of 2019, However, the capabilities will now be brought into service in April of this year. An RAF spokesman told Air Force Technology the uh, RAF's ambition swarming, uh, ambitious swarming drones project continues to be developed by the Rapid Capabilities Office, with the progress during recent trials exceeding expectations 
in a number of areas. 216 Squadron will be reformed on the 1st of April 2020 in order to bring the capability into service and continue its development. Development of the project so far has been under the control of the RAF Rapid Capabilities Office, which supports the Tempest Fighter Project. However, the RAF has so far been tight-lipped about the size and scope of the plans. Announcing the project in February last year at the Royal United Services Institute, Williamson said, I have decided to use the transformation fund to develop swarmed uh, squadrons of network-enabled drones capable of confusing and overwhelming enemy air defences. We expect to see these ready to be deployed by the end of this year. Uh, at the time, James reported that the drones would be used to locate and confuse anti-air uh, infrastructure so conventional aircraft could destroy it. The project has been funded through the £160 million UK uh, MOD Transformation Fund designed to deploy and deliver advanced projects for the, advanced, for the armed forces. Announcing the project, Williamson said, it was designed to complement the leading edge technology of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. The MOD previously gave more details on the program, saying that the drones would work alongside fighter aircraft like the F-35 and the Eurofighter Typhoon to increase uh, their... Um, I don't know what that word means, actually, their lethality. Um, the MOD said the new £160 million transformation fund will also develop sworn squadrons of network-enabled drones capable of confusing and overwhelming enemy air defences. Uh, by working with our F-35 and Typhoon combat aircraft, these swarms will allow our pilots to deliver precise lethal combat power more effectively and safely. So uh, that's an interesting new development, which we're going to be seeing uh, at the start of the spring this year. As long as they come over where uh, I work, because currently the, um, the Royal Air Force have been doing lots of uh, exciting engagements across uh, the fields above where I work, ah, which has been very right. entertaining, I will say, this week, okay. especially this afternoon when we had an Apache AH-64 literally take the roof off our warehouse. <laughs> it was flying, oh, it was honestly yeah. flying that low. So just quickly, before we uh, wrap up on the military segment, uh, our guests then, have, have any of you guys got uh, a, a drone or a, you know, a, um, you know, a UAV yourself? I don't have one myself, no. Vinny? Uh, I, I don't own one myself, but oddly enough, I flung one for a friend of mine <laughs> that's into a bit of like um, movie-making kind of stuff. So he picked one up. Uh, and quickly just threw the controls at me and said, can you fly this thing? Uh, so I just kind of applied the basics of flight. And it was actually quite fun, is ripping this thing around. It, it's incredible the, um, the power and effect that uh, these little machines have. Uh, so, yes, it's fun playing with them in a uh, social sense, but obviously to this degree it's a completely different game. So we're going to wrap up the military segment there for this week and uh, we're going to have a chat then with our guests. Uh, we're going to make this an APG style show this week and go go above our two hour limit, <laughs> which will please Matt no end. But uh, no, moving on uh, guys with you then, uh, welcome onto the show just again and uh, it's nice to have you uh, on here and it's been great to hear you chat as well with the uh, news stories. But uh, we'll start with you uh, Vinny, yes, tell us a bit about yourself and uh, you know what your background is with aviation. Absolutely. Uh, so I live in Vancouver, Canada. Um, you know, my family's come across as many Canadian families do, and but grew up in Canada for the most part. I grew up in the Northwest Territories in Alberta, and 
after university, uh, you know, we're all kind of doing the job hunting thing. So I thought, oh, I love aviation and aircraft because my family would always, we would always travel internationally uh, during the summer breaks and things. And I'm going to just go to the airport and become a check-in agent because it's just a cool place to be. Um, now, this is Edmonton Airport in the middle of Canada, not one of the bigger ones it has now become. And I joined, which was then Globe Ground and then became service air, a ground handler. And suddenly I was doing, well, just standard as a check-in agent and schlepping it through and dealing with everybody and arrivals and departures. And quickly moved up the chain and became a team lead and it should be uh, moved into different managerial roles. Uh, and it was it's been an amazing experience uh, to be that intimate with aviation and airports and uh, aircraft. And you get to, working for a ground handler, you get to encounter many, many different airlines, aircraft, and also other suspects that you don't assume are there. And one of them being like the Royal Air Force, when they would come into Edmonton uh, throughout the summer, we would be the ground handler for them. Uh, so all the L-1011s that they would have, you know, VC-10s, uh, they would all be there. Uh, and then other opportunities opened up to become station managers for different airlines, and one of them being Martinair, which no longer exists, uh, Sky Service, which no longer exists, Zoom Airlines, which no longer exists, Jetsco, no longer exists. <laughs> all these airlines have come and gone. So as a ground handler, you kind of have your finger in all these different pieces of the pie. Uh, in 2006, British Airways thought they were going to relaunch service to Calgary, Alberta. And I thought, I, I need to be part of this. Uh, they were the only 777 operator at the time into Calgary. Uh, so I managed to get that opportunity because it was the same company. And then ended up being a dispatcher and supervisor and eventually became the duty manager uh, for the station at Calgary Airport. And it, that was probably one of the highlights of my passenger handling days, working for the almighty British Airways with the only 777 in the air. Uh, in the airport where everyone had to clear the way for, you know, the joy that is that aircraft coming through and learn and experience so many different things, uh, including coming across to the UK and to the New York centers for training uh, and job charting and whatnot. Uh, took a small break and then moved over to Vancouver and the lower mainland uh, where I was going to do some piloting courses and then kind of steered a different way. Um, took a short break, worked for the Olympics and then, uh, next thing I was becoming a cabin crew member for Sunwing Airlines, which is one of our charter airlines, and then moved on to WestJet, where I was for the longest stint as a cabin crew member, and flew to pretty much every destination that they fly prior to their uh, wide-body introduction. Uh, so having experienced both you know, above the wing, in the airport, inside the plane, and being with all these people, uh, it's incredible learning and getting all the tips and tricks along the way. Uh, and have now come into a role completely different, not aviation related, but that's where my passion, my heart's still alive, and I will go back to it in a professional capacity somewhere. I just got to find that opportunity. Uh, so that's kind of, yeah, a little bit about me and where this whole aviation thing has sort of taken me through the skies, uh, literally, <laughs> uh, up till now. So before we move on to Jeff, then, for the same question, Vinny, just a quick one. Favourite uh, aircraft to fly on as a, um, as a passenger or commercial airliner? Currently operating or just in general? Um, yeah, tell you what, we'll go with currently operating. Ooh, that's tough. Um, 
my heart still lies with the triple seven. And I, I think it's just simply the, the size and it just all, it all just comes down to the engines, just, just the roar and then the, the whines when it takes off. Uh, I just love it. Um, everything about it, the stability of it. Uh, and just, you just feel that you're in a large solid machine in the air. Uh, so I will go with uh triple seven, 200, 300, any variant. Good choice. I think that's uh, popular with with cabin crew as well. Jeff, mm-hmm. tell us a bit about uh, yourself. What uh, what's your uh, aviation sort of start off? So my uh, aviation start started as a as a kid. I was uh, I lived close to the final approaches for Calgary Airport, uh, so got to see underbellies of lots of airports uh, in my back garden backyard, and uh, then end up traveling across Canada. Uh, different parts of the country uh, on 767s, various Airbuses, uh, and then uh, eventually coming into university, taking advantage of a couple of sponsorships and being able to see a bunch of uh, different locations on multiple continents and uh, joys of flying uh, certain standby tickets with that. So um, going from a, a smaller town in, in Alberta to uh, massive uh, you know airports like uh Schiphol or London or Frankfurt and and just uh, and then seeing the madness of it all uh, and then also uh, the interesting part about ending up in say small airports uh like top of Norway where while well, you've got free seating on a public service airline um came back to Canada uh, after living abroad for a couple of years and was actually under the wing. And I can honestly say uh, in Calgary when the G8 was there that George W. Bush interrupted my job as a ramper because uh, Air Force One required a uh, full ground stop within a half hour of it coming in. And some passenger was late for the flight. We were ready to pull the bag. And then we got the notification that the plane was there. And well, we all had to stop. So, uh, so that's where it's gone uh, for myself continue to travel to different locations, not as involved with the uh, airlines as, as Vinny has been, but uh, the impetus for the creation of the podcast, I was in Denver at a uh, conference and a, an acquaintance uh, at the conference there uh, was flying back to uh, through Frankfurt and they were on strike and he was complaining about what was going on. And I thought, well, wait a sec, I can there has to be something out there to help people and who can I reach out to that's flowing piles of miles and has tons of stories. Well, uh, Vinny came to mind uh, right away. And after a little bit of time, we, uh, we ended up uh, started doing it, uh, had our first, um, episode about a year and four months ago. And since then we've gotten up to 27 episodes and, uh, 25 in tandem. So tell us a bit, uh, Jeff, about what you know. Who, I mean, who started the uh, the podcast off the Seat One A podcast? Um, where did it all kind of stem from? Uh, well, it stemmed from the uh, from the experience I had with this person in Denver, and we had discussions. And then at some point, uh, a couple people was listening to online. They just said, "Well, you're not going to get anywhere unless you start it." So I I started it out and to listen to the first uh, couple episodes where I'm just reading. Um, thoughts and ideas and Vinny had shared some some uh, thoughts and PowerPoint parts and I'm just reading them out as uh, like reading an article uh, to where we are now having interesting discussions about 
uh, all sorts of things from gate assignments to, to seats to uh, what happens at uh, customs or baggage and, and Finney having crazy stories with, uh, with himself and myself having uh, seen a bunch of different airports around the world. We just you know, enjoy sharing our thoughts and feedback and, and reading the news and then listening to uh, podcasts like yourself and, and others uh, like uh, uh, layovers, for example, the, uh, the, the amount of knowledge and the amount of time taken to listen to, it's um, definitely kept the interest going. So Vinny, obviously uh, you enjoy uh, doing the show. What's uh, what's the sort of best part of the show for you? You know, the best part I think is sharing this knowledge, this industry knowledge that um, you know the general public doesn't have and you know won't have access to because they just they haven't worked in these roles uh, above, below the wing, behind the wing, wherever it may be. Um, and the best part is just trying to get it out there to give those that listen just that little bit of an extra upper edge uh, for their traveling and flying experience and hence that's how our name uh, is derived from its seat 1a is to give everyone that seat 1a experience where we are sort of in a commonplace thing well seat 1a is first class business class whatever it may be well maybe not on Ryanair but <laughs> it's that premium seat <laughs> at the front of the plane um, and that starts from booking your trip and thinking about the whole process uh, through the airport experience through the aircraft experience and the post flight experience um, which is what motivates us uh, to bring a lot of the knowledge and industry side of it that I uh, contribute uh, combined with uh, the flying side that, you know, I've had as well as uh, Jeff as a, you know, from the Ram side and both of our passenger experiences from, you know, well over a decade of flying, um, bringing that all together, going back to, you know, a myriad of stories and things that have happened to both of us and regaling, you know, funny moments, sharing that with our listeners uh, so that they can pick up. And what we try to do is, you know, we'll, we'll tell a great funny story of whatever happened, and then we'll do a bit of a learning from it. It's, you know, hey, what happened? What can you learn? Don't do what we just did or do what we just did because, you know, that's a way to kind of steer through the crowd and sort of stay ahead of, uh, ahead of the pack. Obviously, you know, immediately you think, oh, when there's a crisis, when there's a strike, when there's weather, when there's delays, um, how do you do it? But there's also other, you know, the positive side of things, how to just kind of always be ahead. So whether you are flying, you know, first or business or just bottom barrel economy, you will still have that, you know, seat 1A experience and it's the best that you can try and make it to be with a little bit of help from ourselves and also from yourselves and all of us in the sort of aviation podcast world. So. Yeah, it's the best part is sharing and getting the word out there. Nev, I hand things over to you for questioning. Yes, I was just going to ask you guys. Um, we, we kind of we hope that aviation gets better, don't we? Uh, as as time <laughs> goes on, uh, but certain things just never seem to get any better. What what would you say is the most sort of irritating or, or some of the most unfortunate things that have happened uh, since we are now in the uh, area of, of mass air travel. I can go on that one. I think um, it was mentioned earlier how, and I think we probably can all kind of speak to the generation when we're growing up, how flying was then a privilege and you would get dressed up and it was, it was a nice thing to do. Whereas now we've kind of gone, <laughs> literally descended to some experiences that are just like, you know, they're the cattle barns flying in the sky, the pickup trucks, and we're all in the back. 
Um, and with that comes humanity that goes along with it. And I think we're kind of in this interesting time where it's great that air travel has become very affordable for a lot of the masses. And that's, that's great. And people in the world, but with that, now you have people that just don't travel often or that ignore the rules. And then you have those that do, and you sort of have this toss up in the middle. And so I think, you know, it's unfortunate that air travel now has become a lot of negative misnomers about it. It's kind of lost that shine and beauty of what it is that we are still packing ourselves into a metal tube and flying across the world at breakneck speeds. Um, you know, and people take things for granted. And having been crew member, you, you have seen plenty of that uh, sense of entitlement. And, um, you know, I hope this sort of goes the opposite direction as it develops and technology kind of lends itself towards it. Uh, but yeah, you know, it's just the, it's the curse of the masses and how it affects the whole system and where we end up. And is it going to change in our lifetimes? Who knows? You know, are our grandchildren going to have a different world of air travel? Absolutely. And hopefully it's for the better, I would hope. So, yeah. Armando. Yeah, I love your guys' background because I, I feel like cabin crew and uh, ground operations agents always have the funniest stories. And I always feel so bad because as the, as the, as the literal face of the company, whenever there's a, a snowstorm in Denver – and you're sitting in Atlanta somewhere, and those poor gate agents are getting yelled at. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, natural weather phenomenon is well out of my control here at gate 24. Uh, and I just always feel so bad as I'm walking by, sort of hiding my head in shame, just watching the poor gate agents and the, the incredible amount that, of patience that you guys have. Uh, to deal with with passengers, but that your podcast is perfect, right? Because it's it's supposed to expose a little bit of those background scenes of what's going on in ground operations and baggage, and you know, de-icing. One of your episodes is about de-icing. Well, who knows about de-icing? You just see a bunch mm -hmm. of you know orange fluid flowing down the windows, and uh, I just think it's awesome that that each podcast carves its own little niche. But I, I'm actually curious. What is what are one of those? one of those funny stories that you, your sort of go-to story that you would share with us on our podcast. Ooh, there's a lot to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. I don't know. Well, I think your last uh, experience or uh, when, when you got stuck in an entire madness of trying to get back across the ocean, landing in New York City and trying to get through an ice storm to be able to get back to crew duty. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a, it's a, I mean, that took a whole podcast session on its own. Um, I think a great one to pull up is the heart. Yes. The cow's heart. So <laughs> for those of you on the UK, you would have remembered uh, the times of British Airways Terminal 4 when it was bursting at its seams. Nev. Um, and that's when we, that's when British Airways started flying into Calgary. It was a Terminal 4 um, operation and, you know, there was a transition to 5. But at that time is when those baggage belts were just giving way and the amount of baggage misery that was inflicted upon the world, uh, obviously it was felt... One of the things in my job duty was obviously to handle and, you know, well, make my agents handle the delayed baggage and, you know, taking the reports and then processing them. And we would get bags that would come in days and weeks delayed. And fine, we'd have these, a room just full of bags and bags and bags. And remember, there's 
one bag, um, and it was a connection from one of the um, African destinations that they would fly through coming into Calgary. And you'd process these bags in, in terms of that the passenger would sign a customs form so that they wouldn't have to come back to the airport. You would then take this with the bag through customs. They would make their decision, do what they need to do, and hopefully you know, after a bit of processing, you then get it out to the courier and off it goes. Well, this one bag comes in and mandatory, you just send it through the x-ray. It goes through and the agent's like, we definitely need to open this. Okay. As an airline agent, you have to be there to witness them opening it. Fine. Get it onto the counter, snip the lock. They open it. And I've never seen a CBSA, which is a Canadian Border Service agent, agent jump back, almost hit the wall in horror. And I'm like, what just happened here? And they're like, just... Well, we're just going to have to go through this now. <laughs> Apparently, a passenger decided to check in a cow's heart. Mm, delicacy. And fly it with them, assuming it was on time, I suppose, to enjoy in this, in Calgary, Canada. And this heart has come from wherever it has come from. Uh, this bag had sat for, I think it was upwards, almost two weeks. Whether it sat in Heathrow or... Who knows where? Um, and it wasn't like it was sitting frozen. And obviously, this thing was, you know, decomposing. And it was all—you can just imagine. And, and it was wrapped in newspaper. <laughs> That's right. It was wrapped in news. It's not like it was in a Ziploc bag, just hanging out, ready to be, uh, you know, chopped up and thrown on the grill. So it was just there. Everything was soaked. The bag. The agent was like, "No, we're." This bag is being, um, what do you call it? Incinerated. And incinerated. It's going for incineration. It wasn't even good enough to just release. Uh, so that was definitely a highlight story. So learning point, don't check in a cow's heart if you really want to bring one. Just, I don't know, bring it with you in your carry-on? Well, what do you say to that? That's right. Carry-on in your carry-on. Yeah. yeah. Well, you've got to have a heart. I suppose it's, it's quite good for you, Nev, obviously, because uh, the words BA have been mentioned quite a bit here. Yes, I, I don't miss the operation out of Terminal 4 at all, I've got to say. That was always a very <laughs> slow process, especially if they were taking off on 2-7 right and actually having to cross 2-7 left and, get, and getting permission to cross. And it could be a pretty slow process. I mean, you could be sat there for, for quite a long time before you got across, uh, especially if you had a heavy aircraft as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm glad it's all at T5 now. I must mm. say, all, all the vast majority of the BA ops are at T5 anyway. So we're going to start to uh, to wrap up the show, but just uh, just one last question for for both of uh, of our guests this evening. Uh, obviously, you're you're the people to ask this. Then, so come on. So out of all the uh, airlines that you've flown with, who do you uh, think? But obviously, we can't afford the uh, first class suites and stuff. Unlike Armando, obviously, has the best seat in the house. But uh, who has uh, the airline, and in your opinion, has the best uh, economy package? In all the airlines that I've flown, I'm going to go with Singapore Airlines. I think consistently um, across all their product and fleet, um, it's just always been a great experience. I've never had a negative experience um, in their cabins, uh, from the food to the amenities to the entertainment, um, cabin cleanliness, and of course, you know, Singapore Airlines world-class service uh, takes the cake. There's obviously been many that come very right up alongside, but um, I'll go with Singapore Airlines for that one, definitely. And you, Jeff? Myself, uh, based on experiences, um, I had 
incredible experience with ANA. I flew out of Tokyo to Singapore and just um, the best uh, hands down customer service I've ever had. I will be honest, I have not flown Singapore before, but, uh, uh, but ANA top of the class for me. And we have to do it the worst from you guys, Vinny, Jeff, the worst. Ooh. <laughs> think about that one uh there's 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 a number well i'll pick one from the defunct airline stock uh and i'm gonna just circulate through my mind as to current uh from defunct i think it must have been vaspi out of brazil uh, VASP. So there was, well, in in the heyday, it was Varig, and then Vaspi mm. was kind of this other, this the second. Uh, and I remember flying them during their days of demise, and it was just unbelievably terrible. <laughs> the the service, the plane, uh, the flight, everything along with it was just like terrible. Um, but in terms of current uh, operating airlines, I'm gonna have to go with Jetstar, the Asia, Vietnam arm of it. Um, yeah, filthy aircraft, <laughs> terrible customer service, no comfort. Uh, the whole fight, I was just like, please, just let's, can we just get there safely, I hope, and land so I can just get off this plane and I can have a breath of fresh air. Yeah. Jeff, for you. Uh, um, not, uh, they've all been relatively not really had anything super terrible that stands out in my history of, of flying. Um, I guess the one flight I took with, uh, with Ryanair one time, it was uh, <laughs> had to come up. Uh, still being with the terminal being built. So our bags were brought out and put on the ground. Um, and I guess I have more bad airport experiences rather than airline experiences and, and security and, and things going on. But, uh, uh Nothing, nothing really stands out, unfortunately, but well, maybe fortunately, but, uh, uh, I had a, yeah, nothing, unfortunately, I don't have anything that, that stands out. I try to look for everything good as I can on a flight. You've done it with Ryan there. That's fine. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, uh, we're going to start to wrap things up very quickly now, but, uh, before we go, um, Nev, we have got another special piece of uh, video just to play a quick piece before we finish the show, haven't we? Yeah, we have. And uh, I'd just like to thank everybody that came to the 300th show uh, last Saturday. It seems a long time ago, but it's only a, uh, less than a week ago that we were there. Um, and we had a great turnout, some great stories, uh, great meeting up with all our fans and people that we've not met before, which was great. Got some lovely messages as well. And uh, Carlos just going to play us uh, a few of the reactions to the event. So I uh, had a job where I just had a lot of office work and I got tired of listening to music. So I uh, ran across Jeff's podcast and then I kept looking for him and then I found uh, the Airplane Geeks and then I ran across y'all. So it just, it just kept growing from there. Oh, I've had a great time, Nev. It's been good to celebrate part of the 300 show. I think the social aspect more than anything else, you know. Uh, I mean, the whole thing was, was well done. I mean, I think the, the live plane tales without a hiccup was pretty impressive. I always assumed that there would be a lot of outtakes there, but uh, I think you're just putting that on. I thought it was wonderful. It was just great to see all of the, the people that I didn't know and to see the old friends and 
it, it was just fantastic. You really put together a wonderful event. Love being able to see all the planes out the window. It was just fantastic. Really, really great. And so great that, you know, the hosts from PTUK and, you know, and Paul came over. Fantastic. Um, obviously at work I have a lot of time, a lot of listening time. You get bored of listening to Spotify and different music things. So I started looking for, because I like sort of talk radio shows. I used to listen to a Chris Moore show back in, back in the day. And uh, yeah, just started looking to see if there was anything that I could listen to aviation related. I stumbled across, I think the first one I stumbled across was playing Crazy Down Under. And then they advertised P, uh, PTUK. Um, I think I joined about episode 40 something. I think Matt had just started at the time. And just kept going from there. And what got you into listening in the first place? Ah, uh, you did, my friend. You did. It was uh, uh, our frequent flying together and running into you at the airport. And uh, you told me about the uh, the Plane Talking UK podcast. And I thought, I need to find out what it's about. And it, it's been great joining the community, joining in when I'm traveling the world and looking for uh, a little bit of entertainment, a little bit of news, and a little bit of... Uh, uh, fun information from a, a great bunch of people. Absolutely excellent. It's my first meeting. It's really my first contact with uh, you know, Plain Talk UK. Uh, but I, I found the whole thing, the, the way it's been organised, very, very impressive. Uh, I, was, I listened to another podcast that has a 24-hour stream and they just put other podcasts on that they appreciate and one of them was Airline Pilot Guy. So what happened was like the podcast I was listening to ended and, and it came on and of course the dulcet tones of Captain Jeff sucked me right into that part. And then you know the other hosts and their banter and it's so humorous so I totally got hooked on, on that podcast and then from, from there of course PTUK, Plane Safety Podcast and Airplane Geeks and yeah, just oh, and everyone in this community from all the podcasts are just such wonderful people. I, you know, I just such a wonderful community. It's fascinating, and, and to see the, the workings of Heathrow that you would normally never get a chance to see or understand. Um, that was really fascinating. It's nice to talk to the pilots and find out what's really going on on the flight deck. Um, find out from the flight crews from uh, who's in the cabin ahead of me, who's in the cabin behind me, uh, if, if I'm not in the cabin behind me. Uh, and yeah, great to see people who really enjoy aviation, um, who, the people who are flying me as well as me flying with them and getting to know who they are. I have to say, Nev, that was um, that was a, such a fantastic weekend, honestly. It was, wasn't it? So yes, very good. tiring, and uh, yeah, the start of this week was a bit vague <laughs> for me, I have to say, but uh, really worthwhile, and once again, thanks to everybody for coming. It was uh, smashing to see you. Yeah, and a big thanks as well, not forgetting to uh, to Adam, because uh, he, he did obviously give us that talk and stuff uh, before we went live, which was absolutely fantastic. I know we had, uh, well, I definitely got a, a few people come up to me and say how great that was to, um, to hear about that, so yeah, yeah, thanks Adam for that. Armando, obviously you were there in video form on a day, but uh, but uh, you enjoyed yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I had the both the the Zoom feed and uh, the YouTube feed going on in the living room to watch, uh, you know, Adam and Captain Nick and everybody. So it was uh, really sad that I couldn't make it there, but uh, I'm sure I'll be there for episode 400. Unless you guys do it here at the. Uh, 
the Udvarhazy <laughs> or the Smithsonian Aviation Museum or something Well, like that. you never know. Do you? <laughs> you, never know. you never know. You never know. <laughs> so that's it. Uh, we're going to uh, start to uh, say goodbye then to everyone who has joined us in the YouTube chat room. So thanks to everyone who's joined us tonight on the show. Not forgetting as well, everyone who downloads the show each week as well uh, via an audio podcast through all the usual avenues of downloading. Nev, where can people send their feedback into the show? Well, you can send the feedback to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at plaintalkinguk. And we're on Facebook and Instagram. And on Facebook, it's uh, facebook.com.com forward slash Plain Talking UK. If you want to email any of us individually, uh, we've got all of our own email addresses. So if you want to speak to uh, Armando, it's Armando at plaintalkinguk.com, etc. So uh, look forward to hearing from you. And also, if you want to send your video feedback or anything through WhatsApp, you can WhatsApp the show. That number plus four four seven five seven two two four nine one six six, and you can send us video, audio files, or a message on there, and we can put those out on the show. So we're going to say a big thanks to our guest hosts this evening on the show. Uh, Vinnie and Jeff from the Seat 1A podcast. Just before we go, guys, just give a quick plug for your show and where can people find uh, find out more about you? Sure. Uh, so you can find us uh, as well at uh, seat1a.org, podcast.seat1a.org. We'll have all of the, uh, the links and the information. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at uh, flyseat1a. And you can also find us on Facebook as well and Instagram. Uh, Instagram is FlySeat1A and uh, Facebook is uh, Seat1A. So take yourselves over there and uh, check out the guys and their show. When's the next uh, episode due out? Uh, good question. I'm going to say in the next two weeks uh, we'll get back on track. I think the holiday season kind of took us off fun of it, but we'll get back on to uh, generally about every two weeks we are able to pump something out so we definitely rely on the, the user feedback so yeah looking forward to a bit more excellent well thanks guys for joining us on the show it's been great to have you on here and uh, that's it from us then so from me here in the ptuk studios on my own and matt oh god he's gonna have some good editing to do on the show when he gets back <laughs> Uh, from me here in the studio goodbye from armando nev and all the guests let's say goodbye see you goodbye. Bye. 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 thank you hi everybody <laughs>